Hello and welcome to Power Reflections, a proud member of the Doof Network, where we reflect on Wildbo's most self-aware and trim work as it releases. I'm Ruben Morehouse. And I'm Elliot Diebold. And we are back from being away to talk about Back Away 5.D, the ending of Back Away, as well as the start of a new arc, Cutting Class, uh, which begins with the trio in class, very much not cutting it, uh, 6.1. But we'll get to that. Let's start with Back Away 5.D, where we get a number of perspectives from a number of different others, uh, starting with the perspective of a true hero, Snotty Boo, who is being persecuted for the power of his art, like a modern Galileo, but is saved by Toad Swallow arriving on the scene to offer these new goblins a very special deal. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I was like ecstatic when I found out we were getting a bit of a goblin point of view. Yes. Um, and like it opens with him like dragging his ragged fingernails along <laughs> the inside of his nasal cavity, which even just saying that now for like the tenth time sends shivers down my spine. It's such a perfectly disgusting opener for a goblin perspective. Mm, yeah, it's it's suitably goblin, isn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah. From from the get go you know, oh, it's goblins <laughs> immediately, um, which is great, of course, because goblins are the best characters in uh, in in Pale. Um, yeah, I, I just find them so fun. Um, but, but on that note, before we before we talk about like Toad Swallow's whole thing, um, mm. I really want to talk about our, our little point of view guy, Snotty Boo, maybe. It, he's unclear on if that's his name yet or not. Um, just because, like, for a goblin, he's surprisingly innocent or, like, non-violent. Like, he, he's having lots of violence done to him, but he, he he's not a particularly violent goblin. Mm. No, he seems quite passive, right? Yeah, he climbs up on, um, I mean, all the other names are sort of blurring together in my head. It's like Bum Knack or something. Um mm. And, and and does a bit of violence there, but for the most part, like he's not a violent goblin. Well, yeah, I guess he does um, suffocate uh, this other goblin by sealing off his breathing passages, which is pretty rough. I mean, that's but like, you're right. He, it's a pa- you know, it's a very passive kill. Yeah, sure, it's a nice <laughs> chill kill. Uh, no, you're right. He's he's. I mean, maybe because it's minor, he doesn't seem especially. Yeah. You know, eager to to enact random acts of violence. Yeah, like like you know, Toad Swallow is usually the one getting him to do this stuff. Um, and like it almost feels like some sort of initiation ritual for like you know some sort of mob or gang or something where it's like you know you've got to get a kill to get in. Um, and you can sort of see like do maybe a lot of the goblins start off not quite this gross, and it's like that's just how you move up the goblin totem pole because mm. i remember from our thing on the goblin names i think they get more violent um as they get bigger um and it's all about like having a claim like you know it was so and so who did the thousand so and so's or something you know yeah i mean it makes me think of and we see this in uh kind of in mrs oh, spoilers i guess in mrs interlude later on as well where we're like it gives me this vibe of like the more you go down your path, the more you become that thing, right? Exactly. So Snotty Boo is is much closer to being just a neutrally kind of spirit of mucus than he is to being a goblin, let's say. Um, but the more he goes down that path, obviously, the more goblin he'll become. 
Yeah, and, and it's just because the established goblinism is kind of violence. Um, yeah, I mean, totally. That's true in real life as well. Like, we're very, as people, so much of your personality depends on, like, how and where you grew up. Like, there's, you know, there's mm. other things to it. But, like, yeah, you know, you can get suckered into shitty cultures if you grow up in them. Um, and is that, what, is that what's happening to Snotty Boo here? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I, I guess that's... Then the, the the ultimate question, the ultimate extension of that question is if, let's say there's a big wheel, right, and right in the middle is a neutral spirit and you can go down any of the spokes on that wheel to become a goblin or a fae or a lost or whatever, uh, are humans on that wheel or is there a different dimension to humanity? How does humanity tie into this great wheel of others? Oh, I, I'd put them outside of it, mm. but... I'm, I, I can't think of a way to integrate my thought into the wheel metaphor. I, I like, yeah, I don't know if that's sort of capturing it. I see, because we've seen so many others are, are from or of humanity. Like, there is humanity in all of them. So it's 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 more of this complex web rather than a wheel, I suppose mm. I'd say. Yeah, I don't know. Yes, fair enough. That, that probably is a bit of a simplification. The, yeah, the core thing I guess I want to interrogate is, I mean, we'll get to this more later, I suppose, but the idea of, of humans are up here and then animals are down there and then below even animals is <laughs> others <laughs> and they're their own, their own separate thing. I mean, yeah, the, the, the real thing that this story has repeatedly, repeatedly told us about is these labels are so arbitrary. And it's weird that that's yeah. something that practitioners inherently understand as don't rely too much on a label, but seem to, at the same time, very much rely on labels. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, this this world, in a way, kind of conditions you to want to label things because yeah. because of the way patterns are established in this world and reinforced by the, the universe, by the spirits. It, yeah. It, it kind of encourages you to say, oh, that's a pattern. Everybody notice this is a pattern and kind of start to make that more true. Yeah, um, and the more, you, the more energy and, and thought you invest into a pattern, the the more true it becomes, right? Yeah. So to an extent, reaffirming a label is what gives it its power. And I mean, that's what I love about this world so much because that, that is how the human brain works. Like, yes, um, you know, the, the human brain is, is always desperate to sort of find and identify patterns and kind of make them up as a thing. That's where most superstitions come from. This is just mm. a world where it's like that actually is true. <laughs> like, mm. The way humans sort of join dots that don't really exist and say, hey, that's how it works. That actually kind of seems to be like actually what happens in in the pack or in the pale universe yeah yeah definitely um <laughs> i guess <should> we <laughs> we've gone off i mean that's what these chapters are probably going to be a lot about because it's very much uh, in fact this first chapter is probably the least uh theoretical of all the ones that we're going to talk about yeah it gets a lot into the concepts of the world so i think that's what a lot of this episode yeah. is going to be <laughs> We're going to come back back to this conversation a bunch today. Um, yes. But yeah, uh, but let's... To go back down yeah. to Earth uh, for a bit. Um, yeah, so obviously Toadslow shows up and he lists seven rules uh, that you need to follow to, I mean, I want to say to join Kennet, but it's not really like, it's not like he's giving them a choice. Um, mm. I, yeah, I don't know. There's so much, there's so much to talk about here. Like, I, I, I want to start with, uh, obviously, when Blunt Munch shows up at the end, we learn that there's actually only five rules. Toad Slow like, made up six and seven, and Blunt Munch seemingly isn't in on that, uh, which is like a whole thing. Very suspicious. I really love it. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, right? Um, I guess let's first, let's go from simplest to most complex. So first, Munch comes in for this later bit and doesn't mention the extra two fight club rules, which I had the same take as you at first and thought, well, why isn't Blunt much in on them? Is this, this is, this is something that's Toad Swallow specific and not Goblin specific. But maybe there's another read, which is just he's not, like munches in on them and not trying to recruit the these goblins with these additional rules. I don't know. I I don't know why that would be the case if it is mm. just the two of them. Like, uh, yeah, mm. to me, I I feel like it has to be that Toad Toad Swallow and Munch it's just Toad Swallow. Yeah, like aren't totally on the same page. Yeah, um, interesting. Yeah, which we- inherently means Toad Swallow doesn't think that if if it comes down to this fight, Toad Swallow doesn't necessarily think Munch will be on the same side as him. Is that right? I mean, it, it could be. Uh, like the other thing is, we've seen how selfish goblins are. It yeah. could just be that, like you know, Totolo doesn't want to share. You know, like you know, these are yeah. his minimum wage workers in his business, and he, mm. you know, he's not going to share them with Blunt Munch or or just with anyone. Like mm. he just wants people on his side, not their side. Mm. Yeah. True. It's not necessarily, uh, you know, as insidious as it could be, I guess. Yeah, he doesn't want um, a co-CEO. Yeah. Uh, should we talk about the the missing third uh, rule? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because this is really well hidden in the text because the second rule also isn't sort of called out specifically. Like, it, you know, Total sort of goes like, you know, first point of order and and... Uh, says that and then we get some more text and then it sort of skips to fourth and you scroll up and you say oh there's another one there i must have just missed the third or whatever but like if you look really closely that we don't see it listed from snotty boo's perspective mm, yes like, and yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm assuming there is one thing that's listed which we can sort of assume is the second or could even be the third i guess but it's like it's which only is no of- bringing outsiders that might say so yes yeah so it's not called out as as one of the terms, but like it, it would have to be one, and we just don't know if it's number two or number three. But one of them is missing. Mm. So that's yeah, interesting because like, but the, the rest you, of them are so exactly what we would expect. Yeah, <laughs> I find it hard to believe there's any secret. Like the secret third rule is, oh, and we're going to kill the Kenneteers or whatever, you know? Well, yeah, but then why hide it? Like, like I kind of feel like it has to be something because otherwise, I don't understand why Wildbow might have like left it out mm. um yeah yeah because you're right like the four we get is basically you can't go wild in the town you can't bring in outsiders you got to give them power and you got to work the perimeter which like all four of those i was like yeah i mean sure so i mm. i feel like this missy one must be our clue for understanding mrs plan mm. or, or understanding what kennet is i don't know yeah it must, maybe it must be something i don't know i'm not i'm not a. I, I don't know if I'm necessarily sold on the fact that it's something versus just being cut for, I don't Well, if it was just cut for story expediency, why are there five rules? You're right. It must be something. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, I have a bit of a theory about Kenneth. So, well, but I'll talk about that when Miss is on screen. Um, mm. Or she's never really on screen. <laughs> um, she can't be. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Uh, so then, wait, obviously, uh, Toad Solo's whole framing around his seventh rule is. Uh, there's a fight coming and, you know, yeah, he wants people on his side. Um, he doesn't care about the two major sides. He just needs people on his side. Um, and mm. so there's ambiguity as to what this fight is. Is it a Kenneth civil war? Is it 
like Kennet versus the Blue Heron Institute or practitioners in general or whatever. Like, yeah, it's it. I I can't decide which of those I think it is. Yeah, I'm. I suspect. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Is there something more going on here? I I kind of had the read of like. There's a way we could just say, well, we know that there's conflict coming because of the Blue Heron Institute stuff and the Carmine Beast stuff that's obviously going to go down, like the murder are going to come up. That's obviously going to cause conflict. But the way that Toad Swallow says, oh, and there's going to be clearly two sides and you're going to be on my side, like that doesn't quite track, right? Like it tracks with the Blue Heron stuff, I guess. It, d- it doesn't track with the idea that the murder is going to suddenly reveal themselves and there's going to be bloodshed because who's going to be on their side in that circumstance? Well, you know, if there if there are three or four people in a conspiracy to have done this murder, that is sort of half of the core of the town. So that is yeah. that is enough to sort of be a Kennet Civil War. Like if it was like Matthew, Edith, um, Charles, and you know someone else, sort of on a, or like Marisica on a team together, then mm. you know those four sort of versus everyone else would probably be enough to be uh, like a clusterfuck. Yeah, but you know. We've we've seen and we see more of that. Even though Matthew is theoretically suspicious, he it's not he's not going to be a villain, right? Like the way that he's acted in consistently and in these chapters indicates, even if he is involved, which he possibly even probably is, it's not he's a villain trying to take over as Carmine Beast for his own selfish gains, right? There's clearly more depth to it going on, and that me, makes me feel like it's unlikely that we're going to get into a you know oh it's matthew and edith versus the rest kind of thing yeah although the thing about these sorts of fights is they can kind of drag people onto sides true like just because when the fighting starts you kind of have to plant your flag on one side or the other because you you can't stop the fighting i don't know um yeah maybe that's why toadswallow thinks that there's gonna sides are gonna break out and he's so uncertain is because it is a it's not a war where there's a right and a wrong side. It's a war where that he sees breaking out where it's just going to be messy and he needs yep. all the, you know, certain backup he can get, I guess. And that, like, knowing Toad Slow, he, like, he may have specified you have to be on his side because he may not have picked his yet. Like, he mm-hmm. might, he's, he very much strikes me as the sort of person who, like, wants to hitch his horse to the winning wagon. Like, you know, he's going to sort of stay on the sidelines-ish and then, be on the mm. team that he sees is winning and just like go with them mm. yeah yeah true so whichever side he picks he wants people on his side yeah whoever gives him a better deal like he'll, yeah he'll, yeah yeah and if he's got mm. a, a little army of snot goblins to you know make his himself even more valuable to the yeah. side that wins yeah it's, it's just um, good good war profiteering business yeah fair enough it's hard to you know I, it's you could maybe see this as being manipulative and villainous of Toad Solo, but it's hard to not be like, you know what? Fair enough, Toad Solo. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Oh, I, I mean, I yeah, it depends where all the chips fall down when we yeah. figure out who did it and, and whatnot. Yeah, this this definitely is enough for me to be like, oh, Toad Solo's plotting something. It more <laughs> just feels like Toad Solo's being the crafty businessman that we know him to be yeah i still see him as like this the the gross capitalism goblin so it's like Mm. like looking out for himself just feels totally on brand for me Mm. yeah um should we talk about matthew's chapter section whatever (laughs) uh Um, yeah 
so yeah, uh, we go into Matthew's perspective. Uh, he and Edith have met with Zed for a power drop-off uh, as the first part of this chapter. Yeah, so I mean, I guess R.I.P. Yolda. Um, mm-hmm. She has been stripped and divided into parts. Yay. Um, we did it. Uh, Thumb, two thumbs up. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, yeah. there's there's some very, very interesting interactions uh, in this that really lead into uh, our extra material this week, I mm. think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do, what, what's your read on this breakdown for power? I mean, Yolda is an interesting character because... She 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 kind of went too far, right? Clearly, um, was too far gone to be saved in any way. But now it does feel like she's been broken down and turned into a, a literal material good, which also doesn't feel great. I mean, I just see her as like just a victim all the way. First of all, like her initial existence was as a manifestation of like suffering children. So already shitty deal. Then she gets hunted alongside John and and the squad for ages. They finally make it and settle down in Canet, where mm. her sickness forces the one friend she has, John, to, to have to kill her. Uh, where she gets buried, and then somebody else dug her up, turned her into this horrifying thing that had to kill people. Mm. And then she, you know, now she's been chopped up into pieces. Like honestly, this might be a mercy killing. Like at this point, like she just keeps drawing very short straws for how to exist sure a mercy killing but also she hasn't just been killed she's been killed and turned into tools right yeah but i mean that's what she was already is the hungry choir like True. she was crafted into that and used as a yeah. murder weapon like this is not arguably better because like i think the thing that jumped out to me is when they're sort of giving her the when when they're giving uh, when Zed's giving Matthew and Edith the like you know hungry choir battery, um, I, wait, the hungry choir I, I assume isn't really generating power in the same way it used to. Like since the ritual is presumably kind of stopped or at least mm. slowed down, mm. this is much more of a battery that than like a rechargeable power source. Like the hungry choir before was something that kept gathering power and like yes. would renew it if you spent it. Now it's yeah. this is a one time use battery that they've been given is my interpretation. Um Yeah. Or at least something that's if it does recharge power on a much less scale because it's not an autonomous system anymore. Yeah, and that's like arguably better than forcing Yolda to stay as the hungry choir and fair constantly enough. kill people to gather power. Yep, yep. That's fair enough, I suppose. Yeah. Um, th- something else that's worth touching on here is how just the sheer amount of times that Zed puts his foot in his mouth in this conversation. <laughs> I mean, come on, Zed. Um, He's a bit clueless, isn't he? In yeah. This. Like, he is very tired, so I suppose that's a bit of an excuse. But Sure. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah the, 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 my favourite one is when he mentions, oh, yeah, they were really excited to get back for the binding class, and Edith goes, hmm. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Matthew Matthew has yeah, to sort of put stuff. a hand on her shoulder, like it's okay. Um, yeah, I my my favorite bit is like the first time Zed sort of yawns and Edith gets a bit ticked off by it, and um, Matthew has to think to himself like Zed being cavalier enough to yawn when their lives and everything they'd built were all at stake was not Zed's fault, and like mm-hmm. I think that's such a perfect encapsulation of just what's going on here. Like Zed just doesn't, yeah, he's just a bit clueless. He doesn't get it. Um, mm. Everything Matthew and Edith are sort of saying are like this power you're giving us, like it actually just isn't enough. And Zed is just sort of cut, like whatever they sort of say that he's like, hey, this is what we agreed to. Like he he's just worried about the deal. He's not actually listening to what they're saying. 
like he's he's sort of too far in his own perspective um mm. like matthew even has that moment where he's like i'm glad brie do- didn't come because like i think i'm at the point where i'd seriously consider killing her to get the hungry choir back like that's how bad it is mm. it's just like shit like that's yeah pretty rough yeah uh yeah things are bad uh, you know a quite this is a question that I had that I'm not sure if you raise at any later point, but it doesn't feel like there's a better point to talk about it. How do you think the Kennet others feel about the Kenneteers going back to school in the midst of this? <laughs> we, since we touched on this, I was pretty firmly of the opinion that it seemed unlikely they were just going to go back to school and everything be fine. And I'm not, I'm still not sure that everything's going to just be fine, but clearly they've gone back to school with seemingly the blessing of the Kennet others. Does that track to you? It hadn't crossed my mind. <laughs> mm. um, it, I don't know. Like, for in cases like Edith, like, Edith still just doesn't seem comfortable <sighs> with the Kenneteers. Mm. So I could see someone like Edith just wanting them gone now that things are back at the point where they can manage it, in theory. Um, mm. It kind of does feel like a bit of a dereliction of duty, though. Mm. Yeah, I agree. It's... Things are bad, right? <laughs> I mean, they're I, not great. I don't know. They, I don't they're know. definitely better than they were in Arc 5, but, like, yeah. I, I, I think there's sort of this, it's like, you know, this is like this first wave, and they're kind of putting that down. Like, they've got the Hungry hungry Battery, which they can use to, um, like, kind of resurrect the barrier for a little bit and, like, get things under control, but there's not... They're vulnerable, right? Like it, 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 it's almost not that the Kennedys are needed right now. It's they're going to be needed kind of constantly because the town is just more vulnerable than it has been, and will stay that way. Mm, mm, yeah. <sighs> I wonder. I mean, you know, we see. Well, I guess uh, we're jumping around a bit, but it's hard not to in this kind of thing. Yeah. One of the ones we see in a bit is quite a short one with with Alpi and Marisica. Um. And they're recruiting, right? Fair enough. I wonder if we're going to see a settlement on some kind of new normal of, you know, oh, we've got some more others and so, and we've got the power from, you know, from 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 Bree and that's kind of helping keep up the small things with our new recruits so we can deal with the bigger things. Like, is that going to be the new normal or are we at the point, you know, similar to maybe uh, a certain point in Worm where you start to think, okay, there is no new normal <laughs> that, that we're getting to. Um, I, I could see like a really interesting sort of angle in all this being if we spend all of arc six at the Blue Heron Institute and, you know, that takes place over a couple of weeks or something. And then the Kenneteers go back to Canada again and it's just mm. completely different. Mm. Um, that could be like a really fun dynamic to sort of explore. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have to see, I guess, where we settle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, just, just to go back to this, this Matthew section though, like, and you, you already sort of touched on this, but how much more do you trust Matthew now after his little section here? Like, yeah, he he is like calling the Kenneteers like actually good people. Um, he he has that moment where Edith's like they're keeping things from us, and he's like, yeah, but I mean, so are we, right? Like, he's just, I, I I don't know. I I I remain undecided on how entangled he and Edith are in this whole mess, but um, at least Matthew is a well-meaning uh villain if he is the villain mm. yeah i uh i if it's seeming increasingly likely that it's matthew at, as at, at the center of this conspiracy and also increasingly likely that 
that's not the end of the story. The end of the story was set up maybe as there's somebody here that killed the common beast in a bid for power. It seemed increasingly likely that the person who killed the common beast was Matthew and that that's not going to be why, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, yeah, like I could almost see this being the sort of story where it, it's like the murderer isn't even... Or, the, yeah, the murder doesn't end up being the point, if that makes sense. Like, or, yeah, I don't know. Mm. Like, like we'll learn about who did it, and it, that just won't even be the concern anymore because there'll be all the stuff around why. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I'm excited to find it out. Uh, we also see Matthew deciding to handle some others who have shown up looking for a fight, and we finally see him uh, release the beast. Yeah, and I, I think it's funny because I definitely kind of assumed when we first met these four that they were going to join Kennet, right? Because we just we know they're in you know recruitment mode, um, and mm. then it, you know we saw goblins recruiting goblins, so now we see Matthew with like talking to four people who are sort of vessels or, or hosts or whatever, and I'm yep. like, oh okay, they're going to join. Yeah, more teammates. Yeah, <laughs> um, and he tries. In fairness, to do, give does it a he shot. Though? He like barely. He's oh, they like, say, oh, no, we're not interested. We're just going to raid and take things. And I think at that point, Matthew's like, okay, not not going to work out. Yeah, but his sort of argument, like, I don't know, fairly early on is like, don't be stupid, which is just like, I'm not a recruiter. But like, but he, I don't know, he, he, he went hostile back at them very quickly. Like, uh, yeah, I mm. don't know. I, I guess it was kind of doomed from the looks of it. Um, mm. I, I get it, doomed. I, I, that was on purpose um <laughs> good way yeah so yeah i yeah i don't know i just I, I to me it jumped out to me though i was just like matthew just seemed to give up on the idea of recruiting them very quickly mm. uh i don't know these folks seem suitably creepy uh and the way that i mean like they attack him right i'm i'm i know when not... he starts calling the doom out actually he 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 does technically start it oh okay Fair enough. He starts calling for the doom before they attack, yeah, and which I'm I... sure they could detect that that's yeah, you know, an offensive move. Maybe you're right. Mm. Um. So yeah, he he. Uh. Well, actually, before we get to the fight with the doom, just the there's a discussion about how these others were created, right? Like the idea of somebody explicitly pushing spirits into you know vestiges or 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 failed practitioners or in some way to create these things um is that in, do we think that the, this is just a, a random bit of exposition about these others or do we think that the fact that there have been others created and and kind of put on the path to kennet is important is there something to it i i just saw it as establishing them as victims like i didn't read into oh somebody created these four specifically for this i kind of got mm. the impression the four of them are runaways who have been like you know living on the move for a while mm. um mm. so they're just sort of like murder hobos basically mm. um and and they're victims like they were made uh incomplete like this and, and possessed in this way mm. yeah yeah maybe you're right maybe it's just to show that the the thought of matthew i don't know putting them down without prejudice <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah matthew lets out the doom uh it's pretty rough um it takes about 20 seconds to take out these these characters who don't seem weak right like no they seem solid um <laughs> takes takes about 20 seconds to to murder them and then has the remaining one minute and 40 seconds to hunt down edith oh boy um mm. i mean yeah like we we knew this thing was powerful 
but like holy shit seeing it in action it's so much more than i expected mm. um i like part of me was almost just like okay how how did how did this thing get so massive you know like how like it's it's is it too powerful i got tin foily for a bit but um i've just sort of realized if you think about like if this thing sort of symbolizes a bit of a depression um and you think about how big depression is in your life um mm. when when you are really depressed like kind of makes sense that if this thing is a manifestation of that it would be this powerful i suppose mm. like if this is a world built on perceptions and, and impressions and stuff like depression has such a massive impact on how you perceive everything about the world it, it would be a very powerful force mm. yeah it's yeah it's weird that it's so powerful right <laughs> i don't know it just is do we have a, like do we have enough information on Edith James to put together a theory on why it's like this? Or is it like the fact that the girl, what was the, the girl by candlelight? Is that what it's called? Yeah. Um, took over and prevented Edith's death maybe means that the doom is more powerful over time or something like that. Like yeah, the that, fact that it was it, it could staved be growing, off. Like, yeah. like, and so maybe it wasn't as big when Matthew first took it on. Um, yeah. I mean, who, who knows? Um, it could have been growing, could have been carmine fueled. That's some fun tinfoil I think I've seen other people talking about. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it, what also really struck me in this part is how much the doom has just infected every aspect of Matthew's life. Mm. Like his sight is, is sort of filtered through it, or it's not even his sight. He calls it the doom's sight, mm. um, which is actually just a great metaphor for sort of the way depression changes how you view the world um mm. but like but also just like yeah I, I don't know i guess it was having more and more of an impact on just how he lives every second of his life than i'd really realized and again looking at it as a depression metaphor that's fucking stupid in retrospect because of course that's what it's like <laughs> yeah it makes sense um yeah it, it's interesting what is there a part of the metaphor then to him i don't know unleashing it what is that how what's the what's the extension of the metaphor to him getting the monkey off of his back in that way I don't know enough to be confident. <laughs> like maybe something about lashing out and, and like mm. like taking it out on other people. I, I don't know. Mm. Yeah, I can't. I, I also don't feel like I know enough to, to have an answer <laughs> to that. Um, should we talk about the way that the Doom fights? It's this weird kind of uh, Rube Goldbergy kind of way of like. I mean, it makes sense. Impending Doom isn't an active thing. It's a oh something bad is going to happen to you of indiscriminate kind of universal karmic weight and so the way it fights isn't by you know cutting you up or whatever it's by oh it's gonna have a tree branch fall on you and impale you if possible <laughs> you know i i like it it's just it's cool yeah again it, it, it's one of those details walbo thinks of that you just there's just that extra level of thought that when you see it you're like oh that's like neat but i wouldn't have thought of it um because mm. yeah you're right like it doesn't kill people directly it puts them on trajectories so that they die um which like again just you know sort of is a bit of a metaphor for how depression hurts you like it doesn't it, it you know it doesn't physically hurt you it, it just sort of puts you in a bad place and sends you in bad directions mm, yeah um yeah exactly uh, you know what that makes me think as well it, it kind of triggered this thought in me of like we know that at the blue hand institute there's this idea of strife that's been introduced to us there alexander kind of turns his uh you know, his doom eye onto you I, or, or uh, Bristow's literal evil eye person turns his doom eye onto you. Yeah. Um, but, and those are, are possible. And we know that ex almost explicitly that they're being done to at least some characters, but 
there's also this other thought that Matthew seemingly might have the same ability now that we know that now that we've kind of had had more explicitly made clear to us this doom is similar in the way that it can kind of impact a, 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 a bad luck on you a strife on you maybe Matthew also is responsible for this <laughs> uh that's a I, I don't buy it it's a good tinfoil theory um, <laughs> yeah I, mean, like, I, I don't we know. still have this unexplained doom on the Kenneteers, right I mean we yeah. kind of assumed it was Bristow yeah, I'm I'm still sticking with that, and I'm I'm assuming that will sort of be addressed in arc six. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, he he was the one who dropped them off, and there could have been a goodbye present from him. Um, like it's not impossible. I d- I don't I don't buy it, but like you could certainly make the case for it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I also don't think it, but it's worth raising so that if it happens later, I can say, yeah, I knew it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> stake your claim <sighs> mm. <laughs> um cool uh so yeah next we go with alpi and marissa to visit the candle girl we we touched on this already yep uh verona's angels uh yeah forming up <laughs> yeah perfect um yeah it's a it's a short scene i mean it's nice it's good to be like oh there's going to be some nice others around that we 99.9 percent sure aren't involved in the common <laughs> beast step <laughs> not 100 percent, but we're pretty sure right yeah, I um, hadn't actually thought of that till I saw you'd written it there. And I was like, oh, yeah, of course. I hadn't considered that our newcomers are essentially not suspects. Um, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to assume they're yes, not. Like, I think I will too. Uh, yeah, which which will add like a fun dynamic to this whole thing, especially like, again, if we go to this idea of the Kennedys coming back with all these new recruits, that's kind of shift. They just kind of got to a good place with the Kennet others. And then mm. to have a whole bunch of new others who probably hate practitioners feels mm. like it could really sort of, you know, get s- sent backwards a bunch um, mm. if there's a whole new dynamic. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we'll have to see. Again, I, it's hard to know what the, if there's going to be a stabilization of the status quo or I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, not. <laughs> to, to that point, like something I wanted to bring up here, because sort of this is our third segment and it defines this pattern of um, mm. sort of like recruiting like or attempting to. Like we had the mm. goblins getting more goblins. Uh, we sort of had Matthew try to get um, three more like spirity vessely people. Um, and like Marissa and Alpi are sort of our, you know, like darkness girls and they're recruiting mm. a third like darkness girl it's pretty explicitly called out <laughs> the way the segment ends with like you know the, as the sun rose the three of them like stayed in the dark barn sort of thing yeah um maybe this is the expansion of factions within the town people recruiting specifically to their little cliques i don't know that also doesn't seem to quite add up does it well what what jumped out to me is like you know i'm assuming marissa and alpi succeed because i, I desperately want this eye it feels like they've succeeded to me and it'd be weird for us to have verona meet and form a bond with this character then have them go and be recruited but then that (laughs) off-screen fail (laughs) um yeah and and then we had the goblins succeed as well but matthew and edith failed and i'm thinking about if the town is growing in this way um we've had a lot of talk in the story about like balancing of of scales and stuff like um you know if you think ray back to the awakening ritual there's so much talk about like the Kennedy is keeping their stage balanced so one of them didn't sort of take over um mm. and if you if you look at Kennet through the same sort of lens like if they were balancing all of the others that were in town or if miss mm. was balancing the others who were in town mm. 
you know, maybe we're getting like extra sort of people on the part of the stage that's goblins, on the part of the stage that's, um, you know, goth girls, and then the part of the stage that's uh, Edith and Matthew, like spirits and vessels and stuff, is not getting any extra weight. Is that going to tip mm. things away from them? They're sort of the de facto leaders at this point. Is that going to yeah. start to change if they can't recruit more people for their I like that. segment? I really like that thought that we explicitly see successes in the other places and a f- well, not a failure, but not a recruitment in, for for Matthew, um, which maybe means that without the gardener, the the garden is going to grow wildly in the wrong directions. Yeah, because I I do still remain convinced that Miss was very specifically building um uh a, a very intentional uh combination of others. Mm. uh and like that is sort of probably part of what's going to shit now that people who didn't understand that are sort of in charge and desperate um Mm. and yeah that might start to tip scales around and stuff in very interesting ways for us as readers Mm. yeah we'll have to see um so uh then we go to our final perspective and of course this is somebody that we can't quite see which confirms exactly who it is (laughs) I love how this section unraveled for me, at least. I, I, I'm kind of assuming here that other people had similar things where you're, you're kind of reading through it and you're like, this feels like a path. I, I mm-hmm. like, this is very pathy. There's all this focus on, on the patterns of what things mean. And then, you know, oh, so does that mean this is some random finder? Are they, is it a finder who's going to recruit Miss? It's just like, no, it's just Miss herself. Um, yes. I, like the moment where you sort of figure that out, at least for me, it was like, Oh, fuck yes. Yeah, yeah. Good times, right? Um, and just the vibe of where Miss is is so good as well. Like, um, Miss is in this insect corridor kind of poking around trying to figure out exactly how it works. <laughs> it's great. It's just really fun to watch. Yeah, it's she's such a great perspective to see something like this through because she's just got that knack for this stuff. Um uh, like, and you know we've talked about this since even before she disappeared she's got this real talent for spotting patterns and what things mean mm. and so being in her head as she sort of explores this house mm. and is like oh that means this and is connected to that and and vice versa or like she knows what to be cautious about even if she doesn't understand it um it, it's just the perfect perspective to see a path through well, yes, and then of course it it expands and becomes more significant, or, or the significance is revealed as we see that the way that Miss is thinking about this in terms of like labels and definitions is very, very important to her and her concept because she yeah. has to fight against that, right? And so we get a moment early on where she's thinking about how like this place doesn't have any words, so things to do with words and and word trickery are probably not relevant, and so the escape isn't to do with like saying the right code word. Um, and it really starts to prime your thinking into this thought of like definitions, which obviously is very important to miss. <laughs> yeah, because the the paths more than anywhere else uh, are sort of these distilled um, like little symbolic spaces where they pull on just a handful of maybe related symbols and, and build themselves out of the connective tissue they can draw between that. Um, mm. And that's, it, yeah, like that, you know, you could see, like, it, it, there's no chicken, it's a chicken and egg thing because it's like, Miss is so good at doing all this stuff, but that's because she thinks about it, but that's because she's from the paths. Uh, like, it, yeah, it's it's just so perfect. Um, she, it, it's interesting as well, because I think we used to talk a lot when she was around about, oh, like, what label is she trying to get? Mm. Um, 
like what you know what did what does she want to be defined as because she seems so careful about avoiding certain kinds of roles and and labels Mm -hmm. and now we've actually been in her head and i'm i'm starting to think like i I always i got the impression that she doesn't want any labels like i think she's actually kind of going out of her way to get none yes and any 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 labeling that that she might be subject to seems to be exceedingly dangerous to her right um like we get a line later on where she thinks and she kind of has a bit of reflection on the connections that she has to the places that she's been on the paths and whether she can kind of leave at the moment and the the response is no if i leave now i'm not tangible enough to survive it yeah yeah but like she's not there's just so much and and even when she had that opportunity like she presumably had opportunities to get the sorts of labels she might be interested in when she was in Kennet. so mm. just sort of looking at the way she rejects any kind of labeling in this like even to the like to the point where she like won't shoot that guy because if she attacks him that starts to become a label i was just like oh, i think maybe yeah maybe that was miss's whole point is she you know, when you open these doors, other doors close, and she doesn't want that to happen. She just wants to be yeah. herself, and she shouldn't have to change that to fit some sort of specific role that the universe wants to put her in. Yeah, I, I do quite like it when viewed through that lens. It feels kind of admirable and like yeah, she's not backing down. She's not letting herself be defined by anything explicitly when what, wait, <laughs> which wait. I think is good and you could view this whole thing like you know the spirits putting people in roles and stuff that's basically like society putting you in a box and miss mm. as a creature of like the imagisphere that is the paths it's sort of like no fuck you i'm like you can't put me in a box i'm going to do whatever the fuck i want um mm. and you can't see me mm. uh, yeah and I mean that this is what really got me thinking about like you know what are what is Kenneth like uh, you know this has been sort of our big mystery for a while now it's like what what's this missing rule or what garden was mistending to in mm. Kenneth mm. and I wonder if that if that was the point maybe this this sort of hollow esque thing that was being built with this perimeter was she building somewhere where people are free from the societal expectations? Well, we'll get to that in a moment right when she talks to the trio i think yeah okay um let's just quickly touch on the fact that she just performs a brutal takedown of this practitioner (laughs) that she finds she the way that she does it is she gets in his face and then seemingly he just kind of i don't know like gets sand in his eyes and has to like rub them to be able to see and while he's kind of blinded she just kind of pushes him into a trap and then he gets crushed by a a a dark soul skeleton pinwheel basically um, i know that's not a reference that makes a lot of sense to you yet elliot but stay tuned it will <laughs> i will go um, to it um <laughs> yeah I, I for me what jumped out to me is how much miss actually gives this guy a chance like she was so anti-practitioner in at the start of this story Mm. And and maybe I'm um, maybe I'm being a bit unfair or like I'm exaggerating the difference, but she really does try to play nice with this guy before like you know killing him for being a dick. Um, mm. like you know just uh, like the way things ended with the Kennedys and everything. I chose to read this as a bit of a like you know she's more willing to give people that chance and like then when they let her down, she will you know send giant wheels at them. Um, mm. but she didn't want to kill this guy just for being a practitioner. And I don't know if the miss we met in arc one would have been quite as kind like that. She might've just seen he was a practitioner and immediately gone into damage control. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. True. 
Uh, yeah, she gives him an, enough chances. He he yeah, really absolutely. just doesn't take them. <laughs> it's his own fault. She, um, she desperately tries to be like quite equal with him and be like, hey, we can trade information, we can help yeah. each other. And he's like, or oh, I could just bind you and you could help me. And it's like, okay, well, fuck you then. Um, yeah. I, I think one last thing I, I want to bring up before um, Miss leaves this place is, so she does go up to this this broken window and she actually mm. lets it injure her twice. Uh, first, when she's opening it, and then second, when she stays in it too long. Um, mm. I'm just bringing that up because she was so cautious the whole rest of this section. Like, caution kind of defines the text as much as the pattern identification does. Mm. Um, but it's like the second she gets to this window and sort of figures out it's going to let her see Kenneth, she she dives, like, way too deep in. And, like, especially when she gets her eyes, or not eyes, her... Yes. Um, it's very much because she just was sort of refusing to leave Kenneth. Um, it's it's a yeah. I think it's an interesting moment where she sort of you know is it's so attached to Kenneth that she lets herself get damaged in order to keep her keeps keep some tabs on it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, which is good. Again, reassuring that uh, Miss is not a villain. <laughs> you know, we haven't had her around, so that's kind of let conspiracy theories brew. But it's nice to see. No, she's pretty chill. I like her. Yeah, yeah, and. We've definitely had it set up at the end of this that there's the option she will join the story again. Uh, I can't wait for that. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, Miss escapes from the, this trap house into Oak Avenue, uh, falling past some old friends to some less old friends, as in they're only teenagers. It's great. <laughs> and she hasn't known them for as long. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I Two mean, so, to that. so Oak Avenue, it's the path. Wabo wrote for the discussion question. From our discussion question, yeah. That was like it was awesome to to sort of see it here. Um yeah. what a great path as well. If you want more info on that, I guess where what was that? It was way back. It was like our two discussion yeah, questions. It's like it. stolen away like three or four or something. Yeah. Um I think people were linking it in uh the chapter threads on Reddit and stuff. Yes, good. Um so there are places to find it. But uh I especially like having the context of of having read that before seeing that here like you you know so the the ballerina obviously first shows up and i i quickly had reread um like the oak avenue stuff as soon as miss went there mm. and you see the ballerina it was like okay the ballerina is either like helpful or the worst one which which one's it gonna yes. be you sort of i came in with this expectation that it was just like no it's mrs old chum she's one of those people yeah. who knows everyone and i was yeah. like so well good. yeah she knows everyone whose whole shtick is not ever seeing their face <laughs> Uh, yeah i just yeah I, I just love this like as a it, it just felt like such a like big dick moment where she just walks up and just like hey old friend and like uh, yeah. i was like getting ready help to me escape <laughs> yeah it's great um so yeah uh, uh of course uh miss uh takes uh this ballerina shortcut from one path to another where the kennedys are this beam of light bridge path um looks very fun love it <laughs> Yeah, it was it was one of the ones that was discussed as a way to get to Kenneth, right? Yes. Um, yes. When and, they were thinking of, but the, they ended up going with Jessica through the ruins. Yeah, which I mean, it seems like this was the better call, right? Yeah, um, this would have been way more fun. The ruins were scary. Yeah, well, aren't they having a blast? Like, it definitely seems like they're jumping around, like whooping and stuff as they go into this path, playing with gravity like it's a fucking game of Mario Galaxy. Yeah, exactly. that was my vibe from it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like a little bit. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess since Avery is is leading this, uh, it didn't establish Verona and Lucy as finders. 
Mm. So there's talk about how they shouldn't do big paths like the Forest Ribbon Trail yes. uh, for yeah. that reason. So, yeah, just yeah, a fun, fun little jaunt through weird space. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yeah, then obviously they, they call Miss. She shows up and they start uh, chit-chatting. Um, and they talk about the seal and they talk about the mystery. Yeah, I guess what Miss is kind of conveying is that she feels that Kennet is potentially the next evolution setting a precedent like the seal was. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. She, I mean, but she, she doesn't, doesn't say that to she them. She kind say of that. sets up those thoughts <laughs> and then thinks something similar to that later, but really doesn't. I, I mean, I guess she doesn't want to kind of structure it too much for them on the, the off chance that she doesn't, they, they kind of don't trust her enough to go down that path or something. Or it would ascribe some sort of label to her to be the mental. Yes. Like she's actually trying yes. to avoid being the, the Guillaume. Yes, um, exactly. Yeah. So like a, like a lot of her focus here is on this idea that like others underestimated humanity back in the day. Um, like, and as humanity grew, um, they were able to sort of take old agreements and kind of bend them to suit them more. And obviously we'll talk about the familiar bond a lot uh mm. in a bit but like that that's sort of an example of of where that sort of thing started off as something to try and put each other on equal footing or whatever and it's now become like and master slave is almost the default um mm-hmm. for, for most big practitioner families yeah um yeah but with the other the other detail that almost sneaks past is and, and again it almost sneaks past in in the extra material at the end the seal has two major parts um where it defines practitioners as those who are responsible for the affairs of others mm. but it does also define a small subset of powerful others that are responsible for practitioners as well yes and that jumped out to me because it, it kind of gets dropped quickly in both instances in this week's stuff where it comes up but like I don't see that. Yeah, right? where have we seen that? I mean, before? The, the the one example is our like Supreme Court of like the Carmine Beast, the Alabaster, yes. and stuff. But even that, they don't feel like they have like agency over practitioners. Just some kind of arbitrations over karmic things specifically, right? Like we know Charles went to them about being forsworn, but you know. For example, Alexander didn't go to them before deciding to set up the Blue Heron Institute, right? No. As far as we know. One that's the, so the other type of other that is listed as being above practitioners is gods. And literally, we've only heard about one god, really, in this story, and that was mm-hmm. the one that a bunch of the practitioners killed. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think we even got told that things like the Carmine Beast and the Alabaster, they kind of exist in places where lords aren't ruling cities. Mm. So, like... If if there's a practitioner who becomes like the lord of like I'm trying to think of a Canadian city Toronto, mm-hmm. um and and then they're good hypothetical, <laughs> um and then they're they're the the lord of Toronto. I got the impression yeah. that like the Carmine Beast and the Alabaster and stuff wouldn't have jurisdiction there anymore, um mm. especially since it's mostly a human place, um and, yeah. and it's like as humanity has expanded, they've said things like Carmine and Alabaster are are being pushed to just those areas where humanity isn't massive so places like Kent and the countryside mm. so it's sort of like at humanity spreading gods are seemingly being killed so a carmine beast um it, it, i think the thing miss is getting at here is that like the seal set up that one arm of the of the jurisdiction that was meant to be controlling the practitioners 
and that side yes. has just been slowly getting undermined and is getting whittled away. Mm. And that's probably why the Carmine B stuff is so important because depending on what happens with this situation, we might be establishing, yeah, as she says, a little bit of a precedent about uh, where these supreme others sit in in actuality. Yeah, and it's, yeah, it's also possible that, like, for example, a practitioner becomes the replacement for the Carmine Beast. Is that potentially where we're going? Is that what how this is going to tie back together as, oh, these checks and balances kind of things are, are, are failing more now or... Yeah, it, there's a lot of things that could could be the end point of where our political classes structure is going to to head. But yeah, yeah, we'll see. I, I feel like at its core, though, the, the the thing that's sort of happening is this group of others that's meant to sit at the top, which should sort of balance the scales a little bit between others and practitioners. Like, yes, that is the part that's being eroded, and that's obviously just not good for others because that basically means that all of them are then starting to sit in that below animals part of the spectrum that has been defined. And we'll get to that. Um, Cause that's a whole, that's a whole thing. Um, but yeah, I, I, and we'll end this now before I start linking all this seal stuff to the U S constitution. Yeah. The I mean, I US... did just unironically say checks and balances without <laughs> <Yeah>. realizing that <laughs> yeah. if there's a clear parallel being drawn here. I, yeah. We've um, joked, we've joked about the Carmine stuff being the Supreme court and this, that feels yeah, let's yeah, let's let's just not go there. <laughs> we'll leave that as an exercise to the listener to join those yeah. dots. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's just we've got to write it out for a few more days. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, we, there is conversation about suspects in the Common Beasts murder as well, um, and of course, Miss continues to refuse to give any concrete hints there. But it 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 becomes clear that the Kennedys have kind of solidly identified Matthew as the only real suspect that can tie into all the car stuff that's happened. Yeah, like I, I'm I'm in this weird position with this point because I can't refute their claim, mm. but I just don't buy that it's Matthew. I don't know. No, I don't know. No, I'm with you. If it is Matthew, as we said, there's more to the story, right? Yeah, I feel weird because I feel like Walbo has just written us a whole thing saying, yeah, it's probably Matthew, and I'm sitting here going, no, I don't like it. No, mm. <laughs> but uh, yep. I, I don't have any better ideas, but I reject this one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and then finally, Miss uh, leaves the, the Kenneteers, returns to the insect building, but this time it's broken technology instead. Uh, and so she continues her escape attempts. Yeah. I mean, this was great because, uh, you know, we've heard about how the paths are sort of unique to when each person goes into them. And it's such a cool way to see this, especially because, uh, the way Miss or, or, or Wildbo really um, walks us through the new things they're seeing, like little broken buttons and stuff, and like the the pros mirrors the um, the pros from like before. You can instantly sort of think, oh, those that's what the three flies are now, and oh, that like you know, there's that arch again. Um, mm. It just yeah, I was just really impressed with how this scene is now completely different, and I was still just able to follow what everything was from the earlier section. Uh, mm. like, very well written. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's great stuff. Um, I want to see more of Mrs. Journey through the paths, but unfortunately, that's the end of that arc. Yeah, so we we get the the Miss suggests that she'll likely be back before the end of the summer. So mm-hmm. if we can stop the world ending <laughs> before then. Um, that that will help i assume i don't know honestly will she help she doesn't seem particularly interested in actively doing so 
<laughs> we shall see, I suppose. Um, yeah, I, I suspect when she comes back, everything will kind of be, you know, coming to a head already. Yeah, I could even see her being a perspective of an epilogue chapter. Mm. She makes it back and talks about where things ended up. Mm. Yeah. Um, anyway, let's move on to our next arc, arc six, cutting class, 6.1. We're in Lucy's perspective. Uh, and, uh, yeah, the Kentiers are back at school. They are <laughs> sitting in Mrs. Durocher's binding class and Lucy is checking out Amine. I mean, hell yeah. Like I was just immediately on board with this arc when it starts opening with a Durocher lesson. I think I've been pretty mm-hmm. vocal about wanting to see more from her. So I was super excited for this kind of befuddled that these three legitimately thought they could do an actual class but um you know they seem to do fine i suppose yeah it goes well i mean it's an interesting class um yeah like, i was man. just thinking wait they just they need to go to bed <laughs> so, <laughs> they'll this... get they'll take a 20 minute nap before their next class <laughs> there's no i i just to jump ahead in those a bit there's no way they're making their afternoon classes i'm i'm mm-hmm. willing to put money on that right now that like they didn't even stay awake for their food to get delivered they're, they're not making it to afternoon classes <sighs> yeah um so actually sh- shall we touch on uh there's this moment that i thought was kind of sad where lucy's checking out amine and then ends this train of thought by thinking uh she was betting he'd say no anyway which is just a sad kind of internalized uh vibe that lucy is unattractive which i i find sad to think about <laughs> Yeah, I suppose I'm sure that, it's not true. That might be the the ghost of uh, class ranker. Of class ranker, exactly. Um, I'm just actually quickly googling. Like Amine is listed in the senior students as well. I think he might be 16 or older. That would be a factor. Well, yeah, maybe he would say no <laughs> then based on that. But you're that that's probably not what Lucy's thinking. Um, yeah, that's not how it felt to me. I, I mean, there's there's the interesting point after this as well. Like after Lucy sort of goes through this this um yeah thing about thinking about boys and having no self confidence about them, she then ca- brings herself back t- to earth by sort of saying, "Oh my, you know, my mind is wandering. I'm getting so distracted." Mm. And I was just kind of I I don't know. I think like it's fine. You're a 13 year old girl. Like, yeah, exactly. About, it's healthy. Yeah, like thinking about that, like. It's not like you have anything better to do, like, you know. Yeah, you're just waiting for class to start. What are you going to get? Get tied up in the argument with the group sitting behind you? That sounds so much more fun. <laughs> yeah, so I, I was a little like that. That was that was the other part that disappointed me. Is to, to see her sort of thinking about that as just distractions. I don't know. Maybe I'm being unfair, but I was just like, I don't know. It seems normal, Lucy. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so there's another moment where when they're talking about how they're hungry, Snowdrop sneezes. And I'm like, it just occurred to me, what does the sneeze mean? Is this because we know that Snowdrop, when she even when she does like thumbs ups or whatever, it comes out as the opposite. And so I had kind of assumed the sneeze was just her way of saying, like chiming in or agreeing with something. But I it made me have the thought of what is the opposite of a sneeze? Maybe she's trying to do something else, like a nod. That was the best I could come up with. I, I think it's just how Snowdrop sounds to other people when when she's in opossum form i think like ah. like i think we've had her sneeze a bunch of times and it's always it, it's like her way of communicating when she's in opossum form but like i i, I do think i swear i've seen a s- sneeze from snowdrop mean yes and another mm. one mean no um mm. this one is not a yes or no response so <laughs> like 
it, it, it's almost like only Avery understands what they mean. Although some of the sneezes are in Avery chapters, so it maybe it's like the like the robots um in Star Wars where like as readers we just get the beeps, but then all the characters mm. respond like, oh, "Yeah, that's right, R two D 2 Yeah, that's it. Maybe that's the equivalent. Um, I thought for a second you meant the clone <laughs> troopers saying "Roger, Roger," and I was like, "Ooh, is that what it is?" <laughs> No, no, no. Yeah, I meant like, um, yeah, like R two D two. How he just does beeps, and then everyone's like, "Oh, good point, R 2 Or mm. the Wookies too, right? Because they do that with Chewbacca as well, I think. Mm, yes. Um. Uh. Yeah. So uh, then, as they're waiting for class, the Kentis strike up a conversation with the group behind them. Uh, this other trio of girls, the new friends. Yes. Um. Yeah. Uh. One of them is described as looking a bit clockwork orange, which is a great way to describe a new friend. Definitely not uh, worrying at all. I mean, that's a that's a choice and a half for an aesthetic to go for, isn't it? Like- <laughs> and yeah, she wears a bowler hat and and strong eye makeup. I mean, it's apt. I was definitely thinking it. I I haven't actually seen the movie, but yeah, you're right. Even from that description, you can picture I was like, the yeah. Even yeah. even from the description, I was like. Yeah, okay, that sounds like that Clockwork Orange movie. And then the text was just like, it's Clockwork Orange. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, like, I, I don't know too much about it, but like in a world that's so loaded with meaning and stuff, I was just like, that's a weird aesthetic to go for. Like, that's saying not good things about you. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Uh, but so, yeah, th- this conversation with the other trio almost immediately dissolves into hostility. And I'm, I was kind of like... We saw Miss last chapter and it reminded me, oh, yeah, the the three people that she picked are actually a pretty good choice if this is, like, the standard for what a teenage girl trio would often devolve into. Although, having said that, there is a hint that it's just strife fucking with them later. Yeah, well, or, or not just strife fucking with them. Like, it's exaggerating what's there. Cause, yes. Because, like, when, when they get into it, I mean, it's, it's sort of described as, like, oh, they became unlikely friends and... It, like I, I mean that's fair because we get some of the the history between their families and it's like you know as always practitioners are sort of running rushing to the bottom of the moral ladder um because mm. it's like oh you know your grandpa was abusive so we didn't want to marry him and i was like oh yeah that's fair and it's like yeah so just call off the marriage don't kill our family and like take all our stuff and i was like hmm see that's fair too that's a good uh, point yeah <laughs> both making good points <laughs> um so yeah, like it's sort of I, I you know it's there's that moment like the conversation sort of opens because um one of the girls I think it's y- Yadira is like mm. wow you three are like weirdly close for practitioners and yeah I, I, that's how the conversation starts that's yeah. crazy what a stupid what a weird way to start a conversation with people you haven't met before but but you you see that here like there there is this this strife oh, exaggerating yeah. it but it's like you know that. These There's three, tension between any yeah any yeah, practitioners. These three are meant to sort of be friends, but like two of them are, are sort of like unless it's some sort of Romeo and Ju- Juliet situation, it's kind of like your friends are the person whose family like did a bunch of murdering and stealing from your family. Like that sort of friendship is only going to go so far when that person is still a proud member of their family, right? Like yeah, it makes me think any group of practitioner friends that aren't from, you know, that are from inside the system, unlike our, our Kenneteers, will have, like, beef, you know? Yeah, there's just going to be this baggage and you just can't... It's like when Zed was sort of like, you know, when they were like, oh, who can we trust? And Zed was just, like, quiet. Uh, like, yeah. I think it was, like, at the start of Arc 4. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, like it, I yeah, mean, there's... the characters that our Kennedys are closest to are like you know um, the other Zed who attacked them at one point, <laughs> you know, or Nicolette who attacked them at one point. Like it, you can kind of just see that regardless, you're gonna have some bad blood somewhere just because of how the practitioner system kind of works. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and that, and you know, that strife is just making it so that that's even harder than normal to get past. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, here's a, here's an interesting, uh, note. Uh, Yadira is an Arabic name that means suitable, worthy, beloved friend, which is nice indicating good Confirmed. new ally. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I actually hope so. Like these three seem not yet irredeemable, like, mm. Uh, something I sort of like. You see, like you know, the way Matthew and stuff like was was praising the Kennedys. I was, I was just sort of like, mm. we constantly see these three going around and making other people better. Like they they didn't beat the aware Bristow sent to them. They got like Clem and Daniel to to stop and be better. Mm. They Nicolette and Zed, as you mentioned, are their friends now because they kind of convinced them to be good people to them. Um, yeah, like, it took a bit with Nicolette, but Nicolette has been seemingly a great ally since they got here um, yes they cut that deal saved with snowdrop's life probably yeah exactly so it's like i, I just see the kennedys as these three girls running around making people better um mm. and and like these three other girls seem like perfect candidates for that because they're from shithouse families but they haven't yet grown into full shitheads and maybe they're savable mm. yeah um yeah we'll see i mean they kind of write them off at the end saying oh no they're bristos let's steer clear but we'll see well to be fair lucy's argument is let's just stay away from both sides like let those two fuckwits yeah. fight each other no, I don't, yeah I don't true care. <laughs> they can befriend them after this whole you know power struggle has has resolved itself yeah or um, you know just you know they're friends with nicolette or or zed who are probably team alexander so you gotta balance mm, the scales get some mm, friends on yeah the other true side. keep it balanced um yeah, so I just I just love that moment where Lucy was like, "Hey, what about just fuck both of them?" It's like, "Yes, finally somebody said it. Just let just <laughs> let those two wear each other down. Um, like fuck them." Yeah, but yeah, and, and we should talk about the fact that um, Yadira uh is a, a fox girl as well, like Lucy, <laughs> um, because she sort of tries to chat to Lucy about that, and she, you know, it's like, "Oh, why did you pick a fox?" And Lucy's just sort of like, "I like foxes." So I picked yep. the fox. Um, and you, 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 it was funny because like the way Yadira sort of came at it, it, you know, took me back to some of the stuff that we started talking about in Arc 4. It's like practitioners from these big families are like shaping themselves to optimize the practice. Mm. Like I, I'm sure Yadira had some affinity for foxes maybe, but like she wants to compare notes and stuff because she wants to like lean into fox imagery more. And it, it's yeah. like she she's trying to shape herself to the stuff that already existed where it's like the Kenneteers and, and miss has been helping them do this um they just like are true to themselves and, and yeah it's just like they boost themselves whereas other practitioners are like carving themselves and shaping themselves to fit something else find this like local maximum the Kenneteers are just being encouraged to find ways to boost themselves mm, yeah it's a good it's a good comparison you're right lucy's choice is i want to do this for myself whereas uh, Yadira is is kind of forming herself into something else. Mm. Yeah, yeah, ex- yeah. Like honing herself rather than growing it, I suppose. Mm. And that, that's uh, wait, and that's probably why Lucy was chosen here because that that has sort of been explicit in in Lucy's stuff. Like that's what Gilmay was helping her to do was 
grow herself so that she can make it tangible in battlefields and stuff. Mm, yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, Durashe begins her class, uh, and we start out by talking about the the seal as well as just the kind of concept of binding in general. Yeah, um, it's it's interesting how this all fits into the stuff Miss was talking about. Um, I think Miss was the one who made the comment um, about how like language evolves. So you know the deals made hundreds of years ago um, don't necessarily apply to the modern world. Um, again, I'm not bringing up the U.S. Constitution and um like that that's sort of what's going on here with the term binding like mm. durashe sort of bring up like everything is binding any sort of control and it's just like mm. okay so if we're using like binding as, as this way to talk about how you interact with others like, it's just such a toxic way to think about yes. every interaction like durashe has it's, let everything's this... boiled down to a power struggle right yeah like she's let this concept of binding infect her mind on like viewing every interaction as some sort of like vying for control and trying to conquer the other person mm. like her example of oh well what if i f- like trick you into staying in- into my office and i was like well mm. why are you doing that <laughs> it's a, it's a <laughs> stupid ass thing to do i know it's just an example but yeah 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 um, um and, oh so the other thing i just wanted to interject here is, is durashe also uh talks about like the the seal and how it affects others and it's so interesting because she comes at it from such a different place to miss obviously like and i don't think it's a mistake that we're seeing these side by side mm. but what durashe sort of focuses on here is there's this sense that the seal just lets others be around humans like she sort of says mm. others that aren't in the seal they don't get near um humanity without incurring a cost whereas like if you're on yes. the seal it's sort of like you know you still shouldn't do things like attack innocence or whatever outside your rules but you can at least be near them and as long as you don't get seen it's it's fine yeah so it's just like it's turned into just attacks to be near humanity mm. um, or to be able to kind of to not have to avoid the the trappings of humanity i guess yeah but you can see how the the seal would have grown in that way because as, as humans have spread across the globe and taken over more space it makes the seal something that's harder to avoid and that's mm. sort of what durashe says but not from the perspective of thinking that that's a bad of thing another. yeah um yeah like, like you know whereas like from the others you, you can actually sort of see this i think marisica talked about it in arc two actually i've been reading uh jay's live reads and they just got to this part um where marisica mm. sort of mentioned that like yeah that was sort of the trap that got laid out is when the seal solomon was made this idea that like you know if you weren't on the seal you couldn't go near humans was probably less of a problem Mm. and then now that there's seven billion or whatever of us that's actually like you can't not sign up yeah you there's there's less and less space available to you now um actually i guess canada is i mean these stories take place in canada i saw an image today to do with um population densities of different countries and us in australia and up in canada are two of the best places in the world that that are untouched by humanity that aren't like Antarctica. <laughs> so it's probably a good place for this story to take place because there's just too many humans everywhere else. Yeah, I could I could see that. I mean, it's interesting because somewhat in Canada as well, but also in Australia, I, I feel like a big part of that is just because so much of the land is useless uh, well, to, to humans. Mean, and that's all that's that would be left to others is the terrible, yeah. uninhabitable to humans land. But wait, if most others are of humanity to some degree, like a lot of their sustenance seems to rely on on humans and that sort of thing. 
um yeah. those places are presumably just as shitty for others yeah like like yeah. you know to to stick with the australian example how many like desert others do you think there are like i, yeah. I imagine it's actually not many yeah no i would imagine that too i mean yeah i i, I guess that doesn't track because you they would need some kind of sustenance and they need some kind of like ideas to build them up and stuff like that yeah yeah exactly um something else worth touching on is uh the fact that lucy is so easily able to like see the tension in this room um she kind of tunes into the way that into durashay's vibe as this unrestrained restlessness is where she kind of lands on it but I would probably call it excitement. I get the vibe Duche is excited for the, how this lesson's going to go. I mean, yeah, it, it's a it, it's pointed out every time Duche actually smiles, and there's only two of them. The first time is when she tells them she's going to unleash a monster, and the second mm. time is when she gets to unleash the monster. Yes. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Um, which I think is saying a lot about her character. Um, uh, you're right. I, I, Avery also contributes to this. I think Avery's the one who points out. Um, did you pronounce it Amine or Amine? Yeah, I don't know. I was. Calling I just took him, a guess. I was calling him Amine, but I think that's just like amino acid, like the, the, the Armine beast. We call him. <laughs> um, regardless of how you say his name, like Avery's sort of the one who's like, "Hey, that guy's really tense." Um, mm. Which you know, I guess Lucy was. You know, she should have been checking him out. She should have noticed he was tense. Um, mm. But yeah, you, you're right. Like Lucy was just. I'll talk on this a bit later, but Lucy was just the perfect choice to have our as our perspective for the Durashe class, I think. Mm, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, it's just fun stuff, uh, right? And then Durashe reveals uh, why she's excited, which is uh, she's she wants to teach you the suitable amount of fear that you should face when you're up against an other and how it feels to be up against an other when they are unrestrained and here to kill you. And of course, the only way to teach that is to release an other to attack the class, which she's <laughs> going to do at the end of the lesson. I love how Good she stuff. compares this to that thing of like, as a kid, like learning about hot stoves. Because I mean, mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that is actually a universal experience. It's definitely yeah. one I went through where it's like, don't touch the stove, it's hot. Don't touch the stove, it's hot. I touched the stove and it was hot. And it was um, hot, yeah. And she's sort of like, yeah, that that is usually the case with people. And I need to find a way to make it so that you don't have to go through that because in this situation, it's not a, a touch you'll survive. Mm. Um, and so she pulls out three others uh, to sort of use as her examples for this lesson. Mm. And, and I wanted to just talk about those because I couldn't help but notice that like, we've got the, the genre, which is like this big force of nature. Um, the compiler error, which is this like modern technological monster. And then Mr. Rudbeck, uh, mm. who, you know, it's just a snake that will possess yourself. Um, so, you know, you, we kind of got like Durche's showing off like, oh, you know, I've put so many things under the seal and I've conquered them. And she pulls out mm. like a, a giant force of nature, modern technology, and like this thing that is associated with like humanity's self. So like, I couldn't help but read into that as this like loaded symbolism of her sort of saying, look, I can yeah. conquer things that conquer people. I can conquer nature. I can conquer technology. Mm. Like, look how hot shit i am the more charitable read maybe is that she wanted a variety of different types of others so that there wasn't one simple answer to whatever she unleashed but i think you're right that it's a bit of both at the very least oh you i was just getting ready to jump in with ah oh, nice yeah classic 
Good stuff. Classic reference. Now the <laughs> trumpet in the background, do, 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 etc. Um, uh, so <laughs> I love this part where Verona says, I bet she pulls a fast one on us. And one of the others on the stage is like that book growing legs and walking at us, Verona whispered, which is just such a trope away of response. I loved it. <laughs> Especially because I, I had had the same thought. And then it's like, as soon as you read that, I was like, okay, well, Verona's going to be wrong. Like, it's a, it's like the double trope awareness where when you see the trope aware protagonist, I'm like, well, okay, it's not going to be that then. Um, suddenly I'm mm. on team Lucy where shit's getting real. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Especially because Lucy kind of vibes out based on the reason Lucy thinks that's not right is based on uh, Durache's reactions and the fact that. Durache seems to be taking too much glee in this to let them off easily. Yeah. <laughs> and she um, doesn't strike me or presumably Lucy as the type to get that smug glee out of like a little trick. Out of a little wordplay. Yeah, if exactly. She, if she was a fairy associated practitioner, I'd believe yes, it. Yes, maybe. But yes. yeah. Um, and, and Lucy almost stumbles on the correct answer. She thinks to herself, I'm questioning why I'm taking this class, which is almost correct. Based on the correct answer that Durache reveals later, which is bail. <laughs> yeah. Although, again, I, I think Lucy and Durache are such a great fit. I'm very confident uh, Lucy will be back in Durache's classroom. Yes, I think so too. Um, so, yeah, uh, with this uh, sort of Damocles dangling over their heads, I suppose, uh, the students have to start paying attention to Durache's class, continuing on positive and negative oh, and hallowed uh, bindings. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I all, all these binding ideas are, are really cool. Um, I think we sort of touched on some of this stuff already, like just with like yes. hallows. Like the hallows jumped out to me because that obviously sort of relates to the whole Kenneth thing. Like these are just yes. all these clues where on a reread, I'm going to be like, it was right there. Um, but yeah, yeah fun, fun lesson. I, I got a lot out of it. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I, I got some... I mean, yeah, it's fun. I, and this kind of happened with the next, with the bonus material too. A, a fair amount of it is just like, man, this is good shit, but I'm, there's not much to say about it. It's just kind of, go read it. It's good. Um, <laughs> in fairness to Durache, I think this is the highest class engagement I've ever seen. Uh, if you're going to release a monster at the end of a class, they're going to start paying attention. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, teachers, take note. This is, you got to add stakes yeah, to class. This is how you do it. Yeah, <laughs> give a little spice, you know? You know, yeah, it's classrooms, it's it's too safe. The kids, you know, their lives aren't on the line when they're doing math, and that's the problem. Mm, um, yeah. Uh, so we, you need to unleash some kind of problem, life-threatening problem that only math can solve, you know? Oh, there's two trains speeding towards us. Which one's going to hit us first? Or, you know. Yeah. know I'm, I'm imagining, like, like, some sort of sore situation where you need to calculate the trajectory or some shit. Like, I don't know. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's what calculate the yeah, yeah. That's like what that. saw needed is it should have actually been math problem. Mm. Yeah, more math. That's I would watch more of those died. movies. Yeah. Um. What's saw two plus saw seven? Ah, oh, that's <laughs> that's what you need. Um. <laughs> anyway, so uh, so Lucy thinks of a creative answer to this problem, threatening Durache, which. This is a great, like, I really loved <laughs> yeah. this response. Like, it's such a perfect Lucy response. And it's it ties so well back to what Durache said at the start that for a moment I was like, damn, Lucy, is this the correct answer? It's awesome. It's baller. 
I'm sad it's not correct. <laughs> yeah, I, I hadn't. I even... mean, it's correct in some ways. It's incorrect in the way that I think Durashay didn't expect Lucy to actually shoot her, which <laughs> maybe if she had, it would have worked. I definitely got the impression Lucy got a lot of points with Durashay though for thinking of yeah. this and like threatening to do it. Because mm. um, yeah, as you said, I hadn't made that connection, but it's so perfect that like Lucy did not give in to the social pressure of not shooting your teacher in the face. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, and I think Durashay obviously liked this answer. I think Durashay is yeah. having a lot of fun here, right? Like she lets out this little pixie as a as just a kind of like, hey, well, maybe to, it was just a trick. Yeah, to Get, psych let out your guard down. <laughs> yeah, um, and then lets out the fridge beast uh, to really hit you with the panic. Yeah. Um, and, and so this is sort of where I wanted to talk about why, like, it, when I saw we we're in the Durashay class and we we're in mm. the Lucy chapter. It, it was like one of those moments, and I've had this in all the other Wild Bo stories as well, where like he puts two characters in a room together, and I'm sort of like, oh, of course. Like, why didn't I think of this? Like, uh, when I saw we were doing Durashay class with Lucy, I was like, of course these two are going to get on. Like, they're, they're similar in that way that they don't placate who they are to, to other people. Mm. Like, they're both mm. just going to wear who they are on their sleeves, and people describe them as intense or whatever. But, like, they just sort of wear that and they're like, well, the people who matter will rise up to the challenge. Um, It's like, of course, there's going to be a bit of an affinity between these two because they're just both so no-nonsense. Yeah, and they they define, like, they don't change themselves to fit the world around them. They trust that they are who they are and the world around them will, when it's important and when the people who are important will kind of adjust Exactly, exactly. And you sort of see that with, like, how Durashay gets her apprentices. Like, it's the people who mm. can stand to follow her who become her apprentices. Um, mm. It's not like, like whereas Alexander's fucking going out and recruiting assholes. Um, and Ray, I, I don't mean, I don't know what Ray's tactic is. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how that works. Um, mm. But, like, that that sort of link between Lucy and Durashay, I think, finally had, I had some, like, other things click into place as well, because... I think I talked ages ago about wanting to try and link the Blue Heron Institute like teacher trio a bit to the Canateers. Mm. And, and like obviously this isn't the whole thing. Like I'm not saying the Blue Heron Institute trio exists only for this connection. There's there's more to them than that. But mm. um if we if we sort of look at Durashay as a bit of a dark reflection of Lucy in that there's these similarities in how they're no nonsense and and you know want the world to step up to them. But mm. Durashay has kind of turned that energy towards conquering and enslaving others, whereas Lucy's using it to make people be better. Mm. And and similarly, like uh, Rad Ray Sunshine was this person who was bright and happy, but he he suffered this hurt. He lost someone close to him, and he's kind of closed himself off. And like unlike Avery, he hasn't seemed to fully reopen that wound. Mm. Um, like he's he's stayed isolated from a lot of people. Um, and then. <laughs> potentially the controversial one is like I, <laughs> Alex and Verona. Um, yep. They're both not sort of classically powerful, but they're smart cookies and they, they tend to naturally do they're well. Naturally, in this, in this yeah, world. natural practitioners for sure. But again, like Alex has turned that into being a controlling dick stain and Verona mm. has not. Um, mm. So yeah, it's, it's like the separation between these two groups of three is that the Kennedy is, are using these aspects of themselves to connect with each other and lift each other up. Whereas the blue heron teachers 
while they are friends, it's that like practitioner type of friend we were talking about earlier in the chapter where it's like yeah. you can't ever quite trust each other and you, you bring each other down a little bit as well as hold each other up. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting just the sheer number of trios that we are getting set up for us in this story. Huh? <laughs> we see a lot of trios um, to compare our Kenneteers to, I guess. Uh, I, I like the comparison between the teachers and the Kenneteers because it's like the 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 she, the clear bond that the Kenneteers have is in such contrast to the how the teachers seem to have absolutely no care for each other at all, right? Yeah, it, it's interesting. I do get the impression from the way they talk about their past that there is some sentimentality there, mm. but also like cold logic in the moment would totally override that sentimentality. Yeah, whereas you know, like I. I I don't, unless things go terribly wrong, I don't picture Lucy in 10 years letting something overpower her sentimentality and, and love towards Verona and Avery. Yeah. Whereas I could see Durachet turning her back on Ray and Alexander if something came up. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. I, I think there's no way that they will. I mean, they've made vows to literally not abandon each other, right? <laughs> yeah, she would have to go so fucking wrong for the Kenneteers to, to go sideways. And I don't want to yeah. see that happen. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, uh, Durache uh, reveals what the correct answer to this puzzle was, to leave the class. <laughs> and Lucy <laughs> kind of reflects on, hey, maybe you're just meant to leave in some situations as they head to their next classes. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, they, they do head off to their next classes in theory but they they take a nap and as as i said earlier they're not they're not they're not gonna wake up i don't think yeah they're so tired lucy didn't even use the thing i like we didn't really call that out but she made a gun um like you know out of out of a soda can that used to like wipe her the fuck out didn't it Mm. um whereas like now she does it after an all-nighter yeah yeah i mean they i guess they're getting more powerful yeah seemingly um so yeah, it's an it's an interesting note that this chapter ends on Lucy reflecting on the idea that something that we've kind of touched on before, maybe they're not equipped to deal with this Carmine Beast situation. Um, yes, they swore that they had to investigate, but they've probably fulfilled that obligation now. They really don't necessarily have any further obligation to get involved in this situation beyond their general attachment to Kenneth, right? Yeah, I think if clues come up, there might be some like token amount of investigation they need to do Mm. uh but yeah like theoretically there's no need for them to go above and beyond to continue chasing down the suspects Mm. um and yeah it is interesting because this carmine beast stuff like there was a lot of thought put into like scattered amongst learning about the bindings there's all this stuff like oh how might this apply to the goblins to the fairies to john like what do we need to research so we can apply what durashay just taught us to the canet others I don't think applying it to the power of the Carmine Beast came up, and like that would be the concern that Lucy's point brings up here is like, say it's Edith, and you're all prepared to bind Edith um, mm. as a as a girl by candlelight, like a fire related spirit, but then she pulls out like Carmine Beast powers and shit, like you know that could totally fuck up stuff that's targeting her as a girl by candlelight. Mm. And then, yeah, the, and so like as you said, the, the other side of that is: can you are, are these three even able to prepare to fight something like the Carmine Beast? Mm. I don't know. Yeah, good question. 
uh, I also don't know. <laughs> I don't <laughs> even know what that means. Yeah. I, I did see as well, like, um, lots of people having conversations, just, just as we start to sort of round out this chapter, uh, like theorizing ways to bind others and what would work and stuff. But it just made me realize how much of a good game just like bind that other would be. Yeah. Yeah. Almost. I don't think we're doing how you have to bind this thing. Yeah, like I don't think we're doing a discussion question this week, but like go like how would you bind the Carmine Beast's energy would be like Yeah. Like, you know. I we're not doing an official one, but if you want to talk about that, chuck it in the discussion. Yeah, put it in the uh yeah, definitely. Um yeah. And that's the end of six point one. Uh and now we dive fully just into a textbook, <laughs> uh, which is the Fabulous text. Uh, we read from the Fabulous book, learning about familiars. Um, what yeah, a new textbook it, it is. I mean, just to start off, the cover that that Wabo's chucked in here as well is beautiful. The like the leather, the goldness of the logo, it it, it just really emanates like I, I don't know what the word I want it like that it's an expensive and valuable text. Mm. like you know you sort of take one look at this cover and you're like that's a fancy ass book mm. yeah um man it's beautiful and like man wapo is getting so good at art god <laughs> yeah. it's great there's like another picture halfway down that is yes, sort of barely in context but was yeah. just sort of like just a beautiful picture yeah um, yeah so good yeah yeah wapo can do the outsides of books as well as he can do the inside almost um <laughs> yeah um so this yeah was, I, this was another oh sorry i was oh, no, say, this is another one of those um uh extra material parts that just gets me really excited for what packed dice is going to look like after mm. pale like mm. this is the sort of stuff like I, for those who haven't really looked into packed dice and i haven't looked into it too much myself I, I haven't done like a thorough read but that is in part because it's very much a sort of work in progress um mm. and you can sort of see like the document outlining how familiars work in something like pack dice now just has so much more to build off of. Um, mm. This is such a great world for tabletop role-playing games and these extra materials are going to be such assets for building <laughs> out that game. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I, I guess I want to touch on just like, I mean, this is a textbook, go read it. There's a lot of interesting things that we'll talk about, but I really just liked the etymology of um the word familiar and how well that fits for the idea of being both a member of your family, but also having an implied servitude. That's just such a cool little, such a cool word. I love it. Not only is this a great, or yeah, just like, it's like one of the first paragraphs that goes through this etymology. It's such a testament to how fantastic Wabo is at taking like these existing concepts, like the, the idea of a witch's familiar exists in, in so much other stuff. Like, you know, it's, mm. it's an old mythology as well as being in other works. Mm. And Wobbo just has this knack in the other verse of taking this, distilling it in, in a really cool way and integrating it into this universe. Like, like yeah, like, like here, like I, I don't know how many other things I've read or seen that have familiars would have thought about it to this extent. Like, this mm. is just so cool. And, and it just adds up with what we've seen in the story. He's put mm. more thought into what the word familiar means than I would imagine even the people who originally came up with it did. Yeah, it's, uh, it's great. It is very good. Um, oh, here's something I want to discuss. They talk about the hierarchy between creatures 
and they have the the old hierarchy that, that that used to that was kind of accepted. But definitely, it had vibes of this was what they thought before, but we haven't really updated it too much. Um, where it's man over animal over other, which we hinted at before, it just makes no sense. Like <laughs> others clearly aren't like they come from people. Like Matthew is an other that explicitly was a human. It doesn't make doesn't make sense. Yeah, I, but Ruben, they've said that it's the case in the scientific oh, sorry, textbook. Yes, of course. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. look, we're going to call out the bias of this fucking text a bunch uh, in this episode. But um, yeah, you're right. This is such a ridiculous case of like, you know, everyone's saying that that's how others are. And then it's sort of becoming true in that sense that just because everyone thinks of it, like, mm-hmm. oh, everyone thinks that way. So it... it it becomes true in action, not in essence, mm. if, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, yeah. Because, yeah. And wait, wait, something we recently called out. So there is that little bit where it's sort of like, oh, um, you know, gods are above man. And what's funny is, again, that gets mentioned and then just sort of immediately disregarded by the authors. Mm-hmm. And as mm. you say, they, they refer to this as the ancient hierarchy. And I feel like there is an implication there that we're sort of getting rid of that one part where the others are a bit on top of us because it sucks. Um, mm. from the practitioner perspective, like, yeah, that yeah. that part of the of the hierarchy is just gets no attention throughout this. Yeah, for sure. Oh yeah, yeah, and it it like it's such an interesting framing because we frame practitioners and familiars as practitioners and master familiar the the children whatever the servants, but then we also have gods as these huge beings. And then we also have practitioners who are kind of, in essence, the familiars to these gods, right? Like a, a practitioner who's like a, like a, I don't know the word for it, like a, a, a paladin type, you know, a, a, a priest, a servant of a god gets access to their power in exchange for servitude, which is more or less, I mean, it's slightly tweaked, but it's kind of similar to the practitioner familiar relationship, right? Like, but it's just not. It's a very human-centric worldview, I guess, that humans are looking through. Yeah. Well, I think that's why I'm kind of assuming the reason we got this now is we is because we're going to be doing more Durache stuff soon. And yeah. she obviously has her familiar was like some big primeval or something, wasn't it? Yes. That was like discussed. It is just one mentioned of mentioned as one of the yeah big yes. Yeah. Um. So it, it is this big, very powerful being, and I feel like that's why we might be talking about this now because. It, is that what we're going to start to explore? Like, Durashay is someone who was tied into one of these very, very powerful beasts, but she's so oriented around conquering others, and I, I, I would believe that, she, like, she shares the view of this textbook. Mm. So how does she reconcile that? Like, like mm. you know, how are we going to have that angle of, oh, yeah, she is tied to a powerful other, but she views it in this way that is still, like, humans are on top or whatever. Mm. Yeah. Um yeah, interesting. Uh, yeah, if that's where we're going, we're going to explore Durache's relationship with her familiar a bit more potentially, which I, I agree could could be quite likely. It's interesting to see how she feels about this um, and yeah. how much she's in control of that relationship, I guess. We don't really know, but we'll, yeah. and, maybe we'll find out. And because the other people associated with her are like Ulysses and uh, Amine or, or whatever, and they're like the um the people who are the patrons to these gods so how how do we reconcile those explicit cases where there are the gods above the practitioners yeah how do they Um, see themselves fitting into it yeah interesting we'll see maybe 
Uh, we also get case studies to define some of these relationships. We get a Kalun Mott and Terence Hay. Um, great, <laughs> I mean, the, good stuff. These stories are so blatantly like chosen to be like human other cooperation. It's bad. It's it's very dangerous. Like mm. you know, deal with mm. caution. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, God, aren't these stories great though? They're just so fun. They they like uh, the Kalun Mott story is set up as like being a an extension of a what is more or less a historical fairy tale to the extent that i actually thought for a moment kellen mott was a real you know it talks about oh this is the version of the story you might have heard i was like oh is this a real thing i looked it up i couldn't find anything um but yeah man it's cool isn't it yeah it, it's just one of those things that makes this world feel so fleshed out that you have a textbook that has like historical basis in world yes like it's yes. not just listing out rules and stats it's yeah drawing from a fictional history like that just adds so much richness to the book and the world mm. yeah definitely um they're great uh the terence Hayek story is interesting as well which is kind of i mean it's it's basically the point of that story is warning against trying to do things that aren't traditional familiar like rituals and relationships right yeah um, yeah it absolutely is it's like i think the the first one, the Calhoun Mott, is like this blatant propaganda story of don't trust others, they'll stab you in the back. And yeah. then this one is kind of like, or if you do manage to get a good deal with one, but it's not the tried and true method, it'll still hurt you anyway. Yeah, if you, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a no-win situation. Well, that's what it's presented as Yeah, with these two cherry-picked examples. But as we'll see later, there are better ways... Um, later on in the book, we also get examples of the different types of relationships that there can be between practitioner and familiar, which are kind of labeled and categorized for us. Yeah. And, and I think what's funny is it, it sort of goes, it starts with the t tyranny type, which is just like, mm -hmm. I mean, Great. how can you, yeah, because well, so it, it's the one where it's like the practitioner is completely on top of the familiar. And then it mm -hmm. sort of scales right down to the last one is the collapsed or failed which is where the other kind of owns the practitioner. Which is the same but inversed. Right? Exactly. I mean, like, exactly right. Yeah, we go through this scale. And so there's like elevation, which is just where the, the other is lifted a bit by the practitioner. And then there's like subverted, which is just like these names just tell you what what you're meant to think of them, that subverted yeah. and elevation are just kind of the same, but the other way around. And it's like, oh, no, but one of these is bad. One um, of these is normal and right <laughs> and pure and good, and one of them is bad and evil. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, the, the bias of just presenting these inverses and saying one is good and one is bad through just through the way they're framed, it, it's just so blatant. Yeah. Um, there's this quote that comes in later in the chapter talking about others as well, where it says, they lack the ability to run their own lives and are therefore better off and happier in a system where their lives are run by others, uh, which I just thought was... Oh, no, sorry, I've read out the wrong quote there, Elliot, actually. That's just from, sorry, that's just from a BBC page about how people used to justify slavery. Sorry, I must have mixed up these quotes. Um, oh, that's, that's so weird. How did that get in there? <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, but no, I mean, there's quotes, this, like, it's so, yeah. <laughs> it's rough, right? Like, that was the thing that it, I, I thought for a moment we could play a game of guess whether this is a quote from a practitioner or from, uh, you know, a, a white plantation owner. Um, it's pretty yeah not great yeah. no there were so many 
points in my live read where I was basically just like pulling out a paragraph and my comment was just yikes like <laughs> yeah yeah capital y yike in fact i wrote i pulled out a quote people can't see this but in my notes i've pulled out a quote that says others are often simpler existences and my comment on it is just yikes <laughs> yep and i, I think because that line yikes. even comes from a bit where it's like you know this may not sound egalitarian but like yeah blah, blah. oh my god it, it's like <laughs> There was another moment like this in 6.1 where th- when, when we got introduced to the new friends trio of, of the girls and the one of them introduces the trio and then, you know, the other one's like, oh, you didn't mention my surname, like you classist. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, is it classist if I just didn't do it because your family doesn't matter? And I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, no, that's, uh, yes, that's it is. <laughs> by pretty much the definition. <laughs> Textbook example. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like that's that there's so many moments like that in this book where it's just like and you're just reading it and you're like oh come on come on you can't be serious yeah um yeah it's it's so it's like you feel a bit crazy that the practitioners in universe don't see it <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely um but to, to to focus on the other aspect for a second because the other comparison that gets made a lot here is this uh comparison to marriages because obviously like in real life, marriage is a very intimate and formal connection that you make with another person. And mm. in this story, like getting a familiar is is similarly a very intimate, important and formal, presumably, uh, like agreement that you make with an other. Um, and, and what I wanted to bring up is there's it's mentioned that there's a, an upcoming rise in casual familiar relationships, which is the term that's describing uh, when someone is crazy enough to pick an other that they get along with rather than something that will be optimally controllable. Mm. And like, that's how far behind this bullshit is that it's only just now reaching the practitioner world in 2018. Um, that like, it might be common for somebody to like partner for life with someone who they actually get on with rather than like arranged or political marriages. Yeah. The, the marriage, analogy is such a great one because it shows the the concept of marriage like you know whatever 40 years ago is where the concept of taking a familiar is kind of stuck at it's this like or not even 40 it's the fucking 20s like vibe right of like um oh this is a your your wife is your domestic goddess and a marriage is explicitly between a working man and a, a housewife and that's it and like that's what this is right like yeah, that's what yeah. The familiar relationship is, and it's, yeah, I don't know. Um, it, it, Jump ahead kinda, 90 years and, and we'll get there. Yeah, because it kind of even goes further. Like, they, they constantly establish, oh, this is, like, a Western tradition. And if you compare it to Western marriage, the sort of mostly political or um, power-based marriage thing just hasn't been a thing outside of very high yeah. classes for a long time. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, I mean, th- this book, even when it's describing casual familiar relationships, it- it's clearly, there's clearly the author has a bit of distaste for this yes. new trend that millennial practitioners are doing. Yeah, exactly. Um, and whether it's sort of like, oh, you need to be careful with casual familiar uh, relationships because, you know, they can turn sour. Like, it's this bullshit of like, you know, love doesn't last forever. So you, you really should be marrying for, for power or like, you know, <laughs> economics, not for love. Yeah yeah yikes yeah uh yeah um so the next section of the book is learning about the the uh, bind between practitioner and familiar 
Um, which it's interesting. Like, I mean, it all kind of makes so much sense when you read it. But yeah, we hadn't really realized to the extent the the actual bind between practitioner familiar and the type of pra practitioner and the type of other that is the familiar has so many implications in the like exchange of power that I thought was so interesting to to, to read about. Yeah, well, I mean, it does it, it does really sort of bring up like how much you need to put a lot of thought into this. Um, mm. Like, you know, there's this idea of do you pick a familiar that accentuates your current traits or do you pick one that complements you and will show up your weak spots? And, I mean, you can ask the same question about finding a partner in real life. Like, do you find someone who's very similar to you or do you, do you, you know, opposites mm. attract? Um, mm. It's, yeah, like the, it, this chapter to me basically just establishes, like, every relationship will be unique and you need to figure out your boundaries with your partner. Mm, yeah yeah um so yeah uh next we learn about the different kinds of relationships that might exist outside of the ones that we learned about before i guess they weren't worthy of being included in the main section well this is more of a focus on like the the common archetypes i suppose or like like yeah it's not like these categories to me sat alongside like tyranny and, and all that like some of these are tyrannical some of them are not like it's mm. almost just like some common tropes of, of these relationships. Um, I, I felt like the focus in this section was uh, how society or the spirits, you know, it's the same thing, um, view you based on your choice of partner. Like, mm. you know, this, this section to me was sort of saying, you know, here is, you know, if you choose this sort of partner, this is what that says about you. And this is what everyone's going to think about you based and your partner, like based on your, familiar bond mm. yeah 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 interesting you're right um i i the thing i the main thing i got out of this section was just kind of the 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 depths of the different kinds of relationships and and the fact that it could be much worse than we see in the in air quotes western world but also it clearly can be better um so we saw russia as an example of uh like others that are much more subservient and bound. Uh, and then we also saw uh, Namibia as this like progressive ideal of human other relationships being positive and like modernized, I guess, um, which was great. I loved it. It's, it's aspirational, the Namibian uh, section, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Like, I, and it reminded me of the Kenneteers, um, in the sense that like the so Nadiesta, uh mm. hopefully that's how that's pronounced uh from namibia like they talk about how you know she grew up in this village where the others sort of live alongside humans and she established this pattern of like just being able to work with others on an equal footing which is just seemingly bizarre to this author um and they're like yeah so she's established this weird pattern of being able to work with others and she carries that into <laughs> like the western world and um like yeah like i kind of see the Kenneteers doing that i've already talked today about like how I, I think they keep going around and making people better and and that's sort of this pattern they're establishing like they can meet up with anyone even people who think they're their enemies and the kennedy's just turn them around and make them better maybe they mm. won't defeat bristol and alex mate i don't know those two seem kind of irredeemable but maybe they will s slow them down a little bit i don't know uh yeah yeah i guess um yeah we'll see uh yeah, man, I just loved, I loved seeing, I mean, we've talked about this whole story about how it could be, how the, 
uh, Kennet could be a bastion or a parable of, of you know, a change to the, to the standard Western dynamics between practitioner and other. And I just love seeing, like, there's evidence that could prove that it's it could be done, you know? I just, yeah, uh, there, I are, that. there are places in the world where this is possible. Mm. Um, although the, the text went to great efforts to make sure it was clear that this is, like, very rural Namibia, yes. like, <laughs> yeah. you know. Uh, you have to be far away from civilization to mingle with others. Um, I, there's also, there was the, the really interesting story about um, the the guy and his familiar and they went traveling and I think it was like somewhere in Norway. They got caught up in this undercity uh, and it went really bad. Um, yes. And, and this just started to bring up, wasn't really related, related to familiarism in my head so much, but like something we've seen um with i think it was the the mooses or the mooses uh <clears throat> from last chapter was one of them like they've traveled the world or whatever and come back and some of them have multiple implements and multiple familiars and stuff yes and and, and this traveling story kind of brings up the same thing whereas like when you go traveling you pick up little bits of spirits from where you've traveled and you can bring little bits of those conventions back yes with you. how um, cool is that i love yeah, that idea What's well, and it's so perfect because like that's kind of what a lot of people view travel as, right? Like it's meant to be traveling is internationally sort of meant to be a culturally enriching experience. You're meant to go and yeah. see how other people live and try and learn from them, and um, that's I, like I that that is sort of the being captured here in in spiritual form. In fact, like it's like the you know again taking something that is a perception in the real world and making it tangible in the in the other verse. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so what this story is all about. <laughs> yep. Um, so yeah, uh, finally, the book ends with a bit of information on what you might expect with relationships of different types of others. Yeah, I, I mostly just viewed this as a cool summarization of some of the broad types of others. Yeah. Like I, I could see myself coming back to this part specifically when we meet some new other to try and figure them out. Like, you know, like we weren't uh, Verona's eye friend um, is divine and it's sort of like you know this is the sort of thing now where i'd maybe try and come back here to see if i can figure that sort of thing out myself yeah true interesting yeah um although i don't know the fact that this is where our chapter ends is a little worrying to me like it ends on a note of making a bond with a higher power is gonna fuck you up and it feels like it's important that that's where this section ends like it's wildbo hinting at us something you know yeah, well, it, it kind of implies that anyone who does this, they're standing on the edge of a knife all the time. Like, it, the thing here is they're kind of like, you can get it to work, but one tiny slip up and you're fucked. Mm. And again, like, the only thing we know so far about this arc is it's got Durashay in it and, and she's got her big, powerful familiar. Like, how much is she on a knife's edge and how much are our three going to tip her off it accidentally or some shit? Like, I don't know yeah true how how careful of a balance is this that we haven't been exposed to with durache yeah, yeah. I, I yeah i'm just sort of I, i'm just thinking because you're right it sort of ends on that which is like i feel like that is meant to be the thought in our heads as we move forward so is that that's the only direction i could see it going um yeah and you kind of mentioned that that's what you thought we were going to get to next which i think makes sense given that that's how this bonus material ends i don't know it's just it's it is odd to me that this is the bonus material we get right now, which usually means this is going to be relevant in a week or two at most. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it seems like none of the Kenneteers are, like, looking to get a familiar, right? 
No, exactly. And that was sort of my first thought. Like when you see it's the familiar text, I'm like, wait, shit, is, is someone about to get a familiar? But that didn't yeah. feel right. Um, so I, th- I think instead, if we're going to hang out with Durashe's crew more, this arc, uh, like, mm. you know, Eloise has a familiar, Ulysses mm. has a god, Durashe has her familiar and all that shit. Like they just seem like a crew who's ripe to explore the dynamics that can happen yeah. uh, here. So yeah. Uh, my guess at the moment would be that's where we're going. Mm. We'll have to see next time uh, because we are finished with uh, with the fabulous text and with all the chapters for this week. Um, yeah. Thanks for joining us, folks. Have a lovely Halloween. If you have comment, what was the discussion that we did? Oh, yeah. How would you bind the Carmine Beast? If you have thoughts on that not discussion question, leave them in our Reddit thread uh, or just thoughts on the episode in general. I mean, leave them in the Reddit we- thread. Should we just make it a discussion? It's question? official. We've got a discussion <laughs> question. It's officially how would you bind the Carmine Beast? Let's say Miss Durache lets the Carmine Beast out of her cage and she's coming for you. How would you deal with it? Um, what tricks, what symbology, what ideas would you use? Would and you use a sympathetic or a, a, a positive or negative binding or a hallowed binding? Um, yeah, yeah, I think it's fun to talk about like the different kinds. Like if I needed to do a positive one, how could I do it? Also, yeah. if there's too many Carmine answers and you think it's getting boring in the thread, do the Alabaster or yeah, uh, pick some any of the other them, two. Any yeah. of the judges, for sure. Um, um, you can leave your answers to that in our discussion thread uh, on Reddit, which will be linked in the show notes down below. Um, and, and just before people leave, we are going to be doing a Backed to Pact in a sec. Mm-hmm. So stay tuned, those oh, of you yes. who's, who's, <laughs> who've listened to Pact. Um, going Backed to Pact. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, but back to the outro that we do before Backed to Pact. Uh, mm-hmm, we're on mm-hmm, Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. I've got my new live read schedule. I'm kind of keeping to it most of the time when I, my yep. power doesn't get knocked out by hailstorms. Uh, so Classic. go check it out. Yep. Um, if you want more from Doof Media, you can go to doofmedia.com where you can find all of the great shows on the Doof Media network. Well, uh, a bunch of all cool- of them, Ruben, because some of them aren't uh, really listed there because they're uh, patron exclusive. Sneaky. Yes, um, true. So uh, for $10 and above patrons, you get access to all of our bonus shows, uh, including the one Ruben and I have been running called The High Ground, uh, where we go through uh, George Lucas's Star Wars prequel movies, uh, mm-hmm. everyone's favorite trilogy of films. Yes. Um, in fact, next in a few days after this comes out, like two yes. days, we're actually we're doing a live watch of episode two for that show. So um, Ruben will be watching it for the first time. I haven't seen it for like 15 years. I barely remember what happens. Uh, Georgia mm-hmm. will be our expert. Mm-hmm. And um, we're inviting all the patrons on that $10 and above tier to come and watch it with us. Uh, so if you're interested in that, come along. Uh, yes. As a side note, you will need to have a Disney Plus account to do that. <laughs> um, but if you do, that's great. Um, also, the time is in our public calendar. Check because it's not a very America friendly time, uh, unfortunately. Yes. It's like 3 a.m. on election morning. <laughs> yeah. uh, Good times. Uh, we are Australian and we did what we could, but it, it wasn't yeah. going to work out. Um, yeah, well, while you're on Patreon, why not head over to Wildbo's Patreon and you can support him? Actually, supporting Wildbo helps keep him comfortable and, and helps. Uh, him keep writing stories it's kind of a, a, a positive binding if you will where you surround <laughs> him with uh, money and and uh, you know fiscal rewards and he he allows you to draw the power of stories out of him so if you want to sympathetically bind wild bow you can do that by going to patreon.com forward slash wild bow yes please do um and with that let's get back to pact let's go back to pact so what's on your mind elliot
all the pale lonely readers have been kicked out see you <laughs> nerds what's on um, your mind I, I the big reason i really wanted to bring a back to pact in today was because the first few paragraphs of this famulus excerpt in the like the extra material we just covered mm. is word for word what is in 2.x of pact um like pretty much all of chapter one is it's just word for word 2.x impact which was just crazy to me because it read so fucking differently to me now than it did back then admittedly part of that is because i know more about the world in general but so much of that is just because um like of the framing of pale versus pact um like, like you brought up that whole there's that whole paragraph talking about the definition of familiar and how it relates mm. to the latin and french origins that's in 2.x of pact and i think we probably it? yeah we we wow. probably called it out in deep impact as like oh that's neat like cool etymology <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's been so long elliot it's been yeah. like fucking what has it been since we read that chapter probably two years is that right close that to years? yeah yeah but but like wow. but, but that's the thing right is it's like we read so much more into that now just because of the framing of this story uh, mm. oh wait, wait before we would have been like huh neat whereas now i'm like oh this is saying a lot about how this is viewed in the world and it's just showing like how much even like two years of covering these stories later we're still playing fucking catch up to where wabo was with this world six years ago mm-hmm. um, <laughs> yeah like the, yeah, this this chapter came out six years ago, and the fact that he can just pull that shit that he wrote so long ago and put it in the story now, and I'm like, oh, this changes everything, even though it's six years old. Like that's insane. It's crazy to me. Like, uh, obviously, when we did Deep Impact, there was like a lot of social commentary stuff in there, mostly around class, right? Which we're kind of getting back to um, in Pale. Although I think in Pale, it's a lot more on the surface. Like it's a lot stronger as a part of the story. Um, it's crazy to me, like, I, I have the thought of, like, has this has this stuff always worked so well in these systems? Like, it's the systems <laughs> of this world so naturally lent itself to these kinds of discussions of classism, or is it something that Wabo has just kind of expanded on and built out more as, I guess, the world got into a place where that was more necessary? But it can't be that. Like, it's just crazy how well this story and these systems support the ideas that Wabo was exploring, even though while they were a part of Pact, it was never like hugely a part to the extent that it feels like it is now. Yeah, there's definitely a change in emphasis on parts of the world. Like, mm. you know, the, the rights of others is something we're considering so much more in Pale than we ever did in Pact. And mm. that's why we're reading some of these things differently. Um mm. But no, you, you're right in a way that, like, I can go back and look at Pact and it doesn't, like, break it. Um, mm. it, it was a bit the same in Wor- Worm and Ward. Like, Ward felt very different in some ways in how it focused on powers and what they meant. But, like, you know, in a way that was just different to Worm, but, like, they, they were still clearly the same world. And it's the same vibe I'm getting here. Like, you can go back. Like, if you look at the Toronto Council in Pact, because one of my first thoughts when we sort of had the others are below practitioners yes. like even months ago in pale was like yeah. well that wasn't true in toronto because in the we toronto had... council exactly we had the lord of toronto who was yeah. conquest but, right he but again you look at it there were two others probably on the council like the eye mm-hmm. was maybe technically part of the council but uh, he was he was more an enforcer he wasn't really yeah. decision making right he, he is listed as on the council though so yes true uh, but like i don't see him actually voting properly or against conquest ever yeah. but maybe that's just me being otherist um 
but the 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 only other two others on the council were Isadora and Conquest. Conquest yeah. was explicitly like being propped up into the position as a figurehead yes. to protect everyone else on the council. All the like others. he yeah. He was being put there as a shield for the predominantly human council. Yes. Um so actually kind of more like tokenism than really him being the lord. Yeah, you're right. Um and then is it so Isadora's the other one. She But kept she's having, kind of she kind of felt a bit outside of the system to me as well, you know? When she kept taking girls like Paige under her wing, and I think there was a heavily implied way she'd taken them as a familiar. Yes. Um, oh, yeah, for sure. Aspect. And so, like, like, you get, like, that's just Isadora. She's just using, a, like, a, she, she, she's being forced to have a human relationship familiar thing to sort of be elevated to that point is how I could like, read that with the pale perspective. Yeah. I mean, looking at Jacob's Bell... We did have Crone Mara, who, I, would you call her an other? She I, definitely yeah. seemed to be, like, powerful and respected, right? Yeah. Or I mean, in air quotes, respected, I guess. Feared, yeah. maybe, is the correct word. I, I would not have called Crone Mara human. Yeah. Um, I, I would have labelled her as an other. But, like, she yeah. was definitely, like, again, she's one of those people, she was on the council, but, like, you know, she was, like, like Briar Girl. They were, like... Mm. They prominent were more wild cards than active. Yeah, they were like, prominent powers in town yeah. to the point where they just kind of were obligatorily included yes. in the meetings. But like the yeah. Bahames and the Duchamps and Johannes, they were running the show. They were the ones. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I mean, yeah. I, you know, I mean, Blake tried to change the system and made some strides. I guess mm. we'll see how the Kennedys do. I, I, what's what's going to be interesting for me is seeing pale readers jump into pact and like they're going to be so primed to be aware of like you know the relationship between others and humans in a way i just don't think we were like at least when we read pact this was not something i don't i think we considered that much we generally (laughs) prescribe to others uh like humans or their monsters um i think it's interesting we we had this we had a lot of conversations at the start about the ideas of like vestiges and like hey, are these, and ghosts, like June, and mm. thinking about, like, hey, is this right that they're being treated like this? And I think over the course of that story, we kind of just settled into being like, yeah, it's fine. You know, they are what they are. You yeah, know, they're which not, is like they're explicitly, not <laughs> yeah, us settling into the 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 societal norms there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And, like, yeah, the, the, then there were, like, others that I would sort of classify as human-like, like Isadora and... Um, the Fae probably in, as well. In Conquest. Yeah. yeah. But like, yeah. So like, for me, it's just going to be fascinating. Like I, I want to, something I want to try and do at the end of Pale is organize a, a read of Pact with, with people mm. who hadn't read it yet. Mm. And in part, because I'm just so fascinated to see their experience coming from Pale of like meeting demons who are objectively terrible others. Yeah. Um, and, and Yeah, true. Maybe that's the difference is we don't have... We haven't really seen any others that are purely evil, evil things. Even the goblins are, are, sa- are sanitized in this. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, but yeah, interesting well, it, how that changes just, your perspective. It'll be interesting to see people in in pack, or people who've read Pale when they read Pack when they meet something like the hyena or they see something like Johannes's domain, like what how their reactions will differ. Mm. like originally part of my plan for that was also getting those people to listen to deep impact as they were reading pact um 
Now I almost don't want them to do that because I feel like what we say in Deep Impact will seem so bizarre to someone who's read Pale because they'll know so much more about the world. They'll have such a different perspective on the relationship between others and humans. Like I almost feel like there won't be as much value in something like Deep Impact for, mm. for them. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> Interesting. Interesting. Um, anything else we want to dive into from back to as we are going back to Pact? Um, just, just like a comment, I suppose, on how neat it is for something like this fabulous text that we just got, like how much fun it was during my live read to apply some of these relationships that are described to uh, people in Pact. Yeah. Like, I think it is fun for us Pact readers to see some of these that, like, are theoretical to pale-only readers, but we can be like, oh, um, you know, like there's the collapsed or failed familiar relationship where the other is completely in charge. And I was sort of mm. like, I wonder if that's what Briar Girl is is seen as, mm. you know, like for a pale person, it's theoretical for us. We're sort of like, well, that's probably how Briar Girl would be labeled, even though I don't know if that's fair. I actually think Briar Girl was more cognizant of that relationship yes. and where it was and, and more yes. uh, consenting than a lot of the others gave her credit for. Yeah, I agree. It was like the yeah. Rose Seniors and the Duchamps were like, oh, she must have been tricked and taken over. That's the only way this could happen. Whereas whenever we met her, she was just kind of like... <laughs> she I seemed hate... happy with the arrangement. Yeah, yeah she, she always seemed like, oh, I hate civilization. And that could be the familiar instilling yes. that instinct to her. So we don't yeah. know. But um, yeah. I was I was usually tempted to just take it at face value and assume she, that was actually her. Yeah. And it was just unfathomable to the other practitioners in town that she would be okay with this. <laughs> we never uh, found out who her secret teacher was her secret tutor no yeah. maybe it was alexander <laughs> <laughs> duruche <laughs> yeah um cool anything else from pact that we want to touch on no i i feel like every now and then there's like little snippets that re- make me want to say something about pact in this but not enough to warrant a whole segment and now i've forgotten yeah. them all so they're <laughs> lost to the ether <laughs> All right. Well, I guess that's that then. Um, Thanks for joining us, folks. Have a happy Halloween.